what I see the difference in all three of these boards is what the footholds do. And I see the moon board as very weird boxes, either really stretched out or really tight boxes. Then you have to create movement off of the kilter board has usually pretty ideal feet in ideal places. And therefore you just have to try really hard to create bridges or like, you know, momentum and do really aggressive movements. And the TB2 has pretty bad footholds, pretty hard footholds to use in optimal places. So that's actually really, really good training for more of that outdoor style because outdoors you're looking through a wide variety of a bunch of bad footholds and you're just gonna pick which ones are the best for your position and the relativity between the holds. Hey, welcome to the Test Piece Podcast. This podcast is about all things high-level climbing. My name's Joshua Horsley. I've been climbing for 25 years, and I love staying at the cutting edge of climbing. Hi, my name is Timothy Kang. I'm a pro climber, a coach, and a route setter, and climbing is my life. We started the podcast to explore and articulate what it takes to climb at a high level, what it takes to go from good to great. Okay, let's start the podcast. Tim, my dude, how's it going, man? Josh, I am your dude and I'm here. What's up? <laughs> I am, I am hyper-caffeinated, dude. <laughs> we're, we're just yelling at each other for the last 30 minutes before we click record. We got, got to do it. Uh, Tim, I'm, I'm just going to pick up right where we left off. You probably don't remember where we left off, but Tim, have you done Sleepwalker yet? Oh, dude, I, I tried it last night and I took a, a whole like week and a half off of it. So basically, uh, sorry, long, long story. I'll keep it short ish. Uh, I took four okay, sessions on it straight. No. <laughs> no, I did not send sleepwalker. Um, but I'll tell you a little story on it so far. Um, I did four sessions on it right away and, uh, back to like all those sessions were back to back from each other. And I think last time we talked, I told you I was going to take a break off of it because of tweak, tweaky reasons, but all those sessions were only like an hour probably of climbing on that boulder. So I don't feel like I've climbed that boulder much yet. Um, and I usually just cut the sessions off because the conditions were so bad. And last night was like actually finally dry. It was, I think when we parked at 6 PM, it, it was 49 degrees. Uh, the car mm. said 49 degrees. So it was like, oh, beautiful. it's like perfect, Love beautiful that. temps. And it was super windy. So when we got there, it was like very, very, very cold and very dry. And I touched the holds right away. I was like, oh, it's good. But yesterday, unfortunately, I felt pretty bad. I just like had bad sleep and stuff. And I was like, whatever, like, you know, I'm not going to not try it. You know, I'm, I'm going to go there. Um, but it did feel physically like the worst that I had climbed on that boulder, which sucked because I made some of the better links that I had. I do feel like I have a send coming in the next couple of sessions. So I'm going to keep trying it. Hopefully I go a bit fresher and I ripped the hole like in my index finger on this undercling, which is so weird because the hold is completely hmm. smooth. It's just so much power and so much friction on that hold that it just tears my, um, my index finger. And so, uh, I think I'm going to go on Saturday or Sunday, just in a two, in two, day, two or three days. And, uh, I'm going to give it some send burns before I okay. head away from I'm home for two weeks. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you again. Uh, I do like that you're getting out there and trying it. Sometimes when we have local climbs, it's really tempting to just say like, uh, you know, I'll get on it later or whatever, e even though, you know, it's right there, you should be focused, but sometimes it takes a trip to have that, that mentality of like, I'm going to do it now. Well, or at least that's what it is for me. Uh, sometimes I just yeah, will ignore that, that urgency, but sleepwalker is so good and so hard and would be a nice little, little uh christmas present to yourself there so uh yeah, get after it nice. I, i'm definitely gonna keep checking in uh yeah 
Yeah, attempts, dude. I, I do. I'm sorry that you made backwards progress. Something about that really, really hurts. I, I don't know why. Like, yeah, it actually I, I really don't like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it actually wasn't backwards progress, but it was funny because I did a clean link uh, for the top, basically pulled on from the sloper and the undercling and just kind of cruised to the top. And I was like, oh, that was very, I was happy with that. Um, but basically, I for some reason couldn't stick the move to the sloper from lower. And I had done that before. Um, but the holds objectively felt a lot better yesterday. So I was like, I must, I must be like in a worse physical condition. And I felt pretty horrible objectively too. Uh, so I kind of knew that, but, uh, so it wasn't backwards progress. I just didn't like meet one of the links, but the other link felt way, way better. So it's actually, I, I saw the session in really good light. And so hopefully the look, next one will just be good. All look around. at that positivity. Look at you. You should be hey. a coach. Uh, well, Tim, uh, <laughs> I, I climbed outside. And, uh, I took Carlo's advice. I, I found a very soft climb and I flashed the shit out of it, dude. <laughs> just, uh, nice. yeah, just, just found a real big softy. Um, and for those who care, it's, it's, uh, this thing called demon on a leash up in Tahoe, the, the stand, uh, probably, probably should have given it a, a nine, not a 10, but dude, Tristan took 10 points. Your boy, Danny took 10 points. So I'm taking 10 points, even though. Carlo and everyone else who has flashed it knows it's probably a nine, but uh, yeah, but uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm only bringing it up. Normally this wouldn't be a big deal, but I just feel like I'm kind of back from my shoulder injury. Like this culminated that, that climb is Dude, a big nice. dyno with your right hand to a kind of slopey sloper jug and you, you know, cut feet and you land on one arm or whatever, basically. And that's my arm that Last time I landed on one arm, however, my shoulder just or my arm came out of its socket. So this time it stayed in its socket, which I was really psyched on. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just getting like some glimpses of being back in shape. Like, you know, when you're just like, oh, I kind of like, I kind of remember, like you feel strong on move. You're like, oh yeah, like I can grab this, pull in and just feel that, that gur that we all want. And yeah, just, just a glimpse, but um, yeah, it feels good, man. Yeah. I, I feel like the the injury like tunnel until you see the light can be <laughs> so long and dark but when you see the light at the end of the tunnel you're like oh like it's so good after injuries it's nice to stick like even just the one move i find that the one move that like causes the injury is the one move it's like the nemesis move where you're like okay as soon as i can do that one move again that i injured myself on two or three months ago you know i then i'm feeling more like myself and i'm stoked for you dude that's really cool and, and demon on the leash even, you know, even though I've heard the conversation, I've never tried it, but I've heard the conversation of soft plenty of times and stuff, but honestly, like <laughs> it's still, you know, V9 and still very aggressive. And so, you know, that, that aside, it's actually will be my pro tip today, but that aside, uh, the, I think it's cool that you can climb on that thing. You chose that one, you flashed it, which is sick. And, uh, it's the move that your shoulder, you know, maybe you shouldn't be able to do unless it's good. So yeah, it's well awesome. To, to be fair, my shoulder actually uh, got dislocated by wake surfing on Lake Tahoe. So it wasn't, wasn't, oh, quite, right. wasn't quite the same, but, uh, but it sounded what they say, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm coming out of the, the tunnel, man. I feel like there's, um, oh, let me count. There's like seven stages of recovery. Uh, first, number one, you feel just freaking weak when you come back from injury or long break. And then stage two is just like, you like dig in you know you're going to be weak for a while and you just suck it up. And then and I just had this on, on stage three is you do that for a while and then you have this session where you just feel even worse and you kind of just want to give up. You're like, I guess I'm never mm. going to be strong again. Like I, I, I've always had that where 
you feel like you've just been Same grinding here. and you're just like, fuck, dude, that's it. And then stage four, and this happened to me too, is you come back and somehow miraculously, like you made like two leaps and you're you're back kind of in shape. You're like, oh my God, I don't know what happened. And for me, it always happens when I literally give up. I'm just like, fuck it. <laughs> like, that's it. I'm done. Uh, and then you get that glimpse of being in shape. You, you know, you kind of start climbing decently, but you're not in shape for another few months. And then you finally get strong. I guess that'd be stage six, but then you're not like really, really strong because you get on some super hard project and you're like, oh, dude. And then, and this is the one that always sucks. And then you're finally really strong again, but somehow you don't really appreciate that you've just spent the last like six months getting strong and you think that you're mm. somehow weak, even though you're really in tip top shape and you don't appreciate it. And, you know, then you get injured or something again and it starts over. So again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like stage, I don't know what it was like stage four, stage five, maybe. I mean, truthfully, I've only been climbing again for about a month. Uh, like I looked on my moonboard log and I think I did my first session a little less than a month back. So here I am, dude, getting, getting a glimpse, flashing soft climbs. Dude. Thanks, Carlo. That's actually really, it's actually really funny. The stages that you just talked about. Cause I'm like, I'm like listening and I'm like, wow, that is so accurate. <laughs> like all the injuries that I've had, but also like, I don't know how you feel about this, but cause you've had a fair amount of injuries and you're climbing like, or you've had like repeat repeat injuries so you've had that stage process over and over again always and i feel uh <laughs> it's always your shoulder that's always that's for me it's always my fingers um or like and it's different types of finger injuries but usually uh i don't know how you feel about this but my stages get like it, it's quicker like each stage doesn't last as long because usually the stages last for a long time when you can't transition your mindset but then also um my understanding of why those stages are difficult or why they feel so bad on myself. Also just my awareness of that gets a lot better. So even though I think, I think if I got hurt ever, I would be more bummed now than ever, but I also definitely can handle like the feeling upcoming, you know, coming to towards an injury. I can be more smart about that during an injury. I can be a lot smarter about that. And during that recovery stages, I can be a lot smarter about that. Um, and I don't know how you feel about that over time, but definitely those stages for me have gotten more clear on like why those things happen. Yeah. I think theoretically I agree with everything you're saying, but I'm still in like stage five and I'm, I'm still wallowing and unhappy. So I, I don't know. I oh, can't sorry. be, can't be okay. objective. I'll check in two weeks then. Uh, I got a call from a, a guy. I, I, I feel bad. I can't remember his name, but he messaged me. He's like, Josh, I want to do a coaching session, but I just dislocated my shoulder like, do you think I should wait? And I was like, dude, let me just talk to you for 15 minutes. Cause I just, as someone who just dislocated their shoulder has been through it, I just wanted to help them out. I was like, so I just wanted to talk to him for a little bit. And I was like, no, we should not do a coaching session. You just dislocated your shoulder. Right. <laughs> and uh, he's like, ah, oh, it's not that bad. Like, you know, I can kind of move it around a little bit. And I just, and then you know, I loved his psych and he was asking me about all these things he could do to train through it. And I just admired his psych and I felt bad being a bit of a wet blanket. I was like, dude, you need to make sure that you didn't tear your labrum. And if you did, you get an MRI. Um, but yeah, shout out to, to him for his psych. And, and that, that was, that's the better approach is, is maintaining that, uh, that mentality of what can I do to get better right now? And I definitely know a handful of people who say broke their ankle and then spent four months just hangboarding and came back and mm -hmm. crushed. So 
Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I, I'm still deep in the stages and just kind of I, I'm not I'm not unhappy. I do. You you can hear me. I'm fucking psyched, but I don't yeah. know if I'm objectively able to talk about being able to go through it quicker and it, and I'm wise and older now. And yeah. It's just I'm just still <laughs> I'm just still angry. Yeah, it's cool that you talk to that guy though. I think that's a far more helpful type of conversation than even coaching can be. It's so funny too. I've had um uh, maybe maybe some of my clients who are listening maybe would know, but I've had clients that for the first session that I've had come injured. And I'm like, well, you're injured right now? Like, you know, I'll talk about, oh, should we, what should we try? Like, go try this. And they're like, oh, well, you know, actually I've this got like a pulley tweak or whatever. I'm like, what? Like, why would you sign up for uh, a $100 session with me when honestly a huge part of coaching sessions, and this might help for any of you guys, if you're going to go and work with a coach, try to be fresh, like try to be fresh, try to show your best you know, try to be ready for everything. Like, it's like some of these people maybe wanted me to like help them through that part too. But I'm like, I'm not a PT. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a climbing coach. <laughs> like, I can give you experience on how injuries work and stuff, but I cannot give you the answers. You know, like I could also help you optimize your session while an injury is happening, but the optimal approach to an injury is recovering. <laughs> and then building foundation, exactly what Josh is saying, all the stages, right? Recovering and then giving yourself the consistency approach to give yourself a foundation to the handle of the things that hurt you in the first place and then teach yourself again and get psyched. <laughs> I'm laughing because I just, coach, uh, I want I want to climb harder. Well, your finger's fucked up. <laughs> Maybe you should get that <laughs> fixed. Like that would be, that would definitely help you out. No, we're, we're la I'm laughing and I'm joking because we've all been there. And I do think that, I mean, I do think I got to say, as a coach, you always, you do need to and I know you're always there for your clients to like help people through those hard times. And that's why it's fun to work with people over a long swath of time instead of just like, hello. Oh, you know, nice to meet you. I'm sorry you're hurt. Good luck. Uh, because coaches totally. should be there in your corner. And I actually think that that's where I wish I had a coach. If only I knew one, uh, a coach where, <laughs> you know, I know oftentimes that I'm not doing what's optimal even when I'm injured and I'm, you know, just sitting around wallowing and eating ice cream. And it's so nice if you just have someone keeping you accountable. That's like, okay, Josh, um, you know, your shoulders hurt. Uh, how's your left arm, you know, my, your right shoulders hurt. How's your left arm, one arm hangs doing. Okay. Oh, you didn't do them this week. Okay. Well, here's your goal for next week. Okay. This is what you're doing Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And just having that accountability and having someone to hold your hand is really powerful. And I, you know, I, ideally, you coach yourself and, and, you know, we're always here to help you learn how to learn on your own, not need a coach all the time, but there is something about just that accountability that I used to, I mean, all through my youth, I competed in athletics, like gymnastics or swimming or, or climbing and having a coach that you care and love. It, it was a big part of my, my childhood and I, it brings out the best, or at least it really brought the best of me. I wanted to show up and do my best for my coach. Anyways. Way off topic, Tim. I don't know. Oh, me too. No, yeah, I was going to make a comment, but we're way off topic. So <laughs> let's reel it back. But no, good, always good discussions there. Okay. Well, uh, this this whole podcast, today's podcast is going to be all about boards. Spray walls. I, I guess it's funny. I say like boards and somehow spray walls. Like if I said wall, I would think of a spray wall. If I say boards, I think of a standardized board like moon board or kilter. Uh, we'll try to make sure that we delineate those more clearly. But this was this was sparked by a uh, this topic was kind of sparked by a question from Samuel who hit me up on Instagram, just kind of asking advice about building a home wall. 
and what you should build. And it's just such a fun topic. I don't know. I just love boards and I, I don't know, I'm a little worried. Me and Tim were a little bit worried that one podcast is not enough to cover all the things in boards. Actually, we're not worried. Like it just, we can't, we will not, not cover everything. <laughs> uh, but before we dive into that, I'm, I wanted to, I mean, we already will dive into it, but I want to go about it in a roundabout way by talking about this latest video from Tension. Uh, was it called Board Lord? I, yeah, Board Lords or something like that. And it was actually, Tim, you know all these guys better than me. I know who Zach Gall is, but who are the three guys and what, what were they doing in that video? All right. Um, yeah, so I just watched it too before, like an hour ago, which was sweet. Um, I love this video. I, I just like the it's production great. too. Like, Tension's doing tension. a great job like everything that they're doing is a great job and they try harder every time which is sweet um but yeah noah wheeler is so i don't actually know ben burke personally but we've talked um you know it's just how climbing works <laughs> you just talk over instagram and stuff but i know ben through a lot of mutual friends and we're uh, close in age but ben i've always known as one of the strongest fingers on the climbing wall ever uh he's extremely strong um, and then other than that, I don't know too much about him, but he's always seems like a really nice guy. He's really, 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 really strong in that pure crim style. And he climbed a lot at cats. Um, I think when he moved to Colorado and he's from Alabama, uh, and cats is kind of notorious for having that more board style, but it's all spray wall kind of, and it definitely promotes and builds stronger fingers. And you definitely look really good on those walls. If you have strong that's fingers, where, that's where Daniel Woods was built. That's, that's DW. It's yeah. That's like our school right. room. That's like the American equivalent of the the school yeah. room uh in sheffield i want to say in you know in england mm -hmm. uh yeah in, in the uk so somewhere. what were they doing what what were um, these strong strong bucks doing uh at yeah. the engine training center well actually i saw i'll intro noah and zach as well because I, I do think that these guys are some of the board lords but noah is a, a much lower key name uh he's younger as well I, I don't know exactly how old he is but maybe he's like in his early 20s or Maybe still like nineteen or twenty. I'm not sure. Nineteen, twenty, or twenty-one. Oh I God, think he might be a teenager. But Noah, I remember. Jesus, he might, dude, might still oh be a teenager. Like He's twice as old so, as so strong. Like that guy. His, I, I actually was so happy that they showed his split on that video because I was like, there must be. Literally watching the first like five or ten minutes, I was watching and I was like, there must be something wrong with this kid. Like today, there must be something wrong with this kid today. And I, they showed his horrendous split. And I was like, okay, that's the reason. Because when I climbed with Noah and Bishop, first of all, he like almost, he had one of the best flash goes on lucid dreaming I've ever seen. And then he just looks so strong on the move. Like just his actual pulling and his fingers are some of the strongest I've seen in activation. And it, like we've always talked about finger, there's always such a different level of finger strength. But in terms of activating fingers on bad holds, he's one of the best I've ever seen close to drew ruana which i think is the strongest finger activation i've ever seen on the wall um and then zach man zach is just uh zach is just a perfect build climber in my opinion like he's just so built for climbing and i think that was really obvious in watching him climb but i think zach and zach knows this and so i'm not making fun of him or anything um and i would love to have zach on to talk about this more but zach and he's always been vocal about this but when holds get smaller he loses so much power. And I think that was so evident on the harder climb that they had. And uh, I think it wasn't a great showing of how Zach could be on the boards. I think Zach is one of the best board climbers I've ever seen. Uh, so it was an interesting, but that, that well, point will be brought up later. That kind yeah, of small well, well just, just before we go too much deeper, let's just kind of paint a picture of what the video was. And it was 
these three guys yeah, and cheekily called board lords, uh, which just sounds cool. And they were on the new TB2 board. And I think they did, did they do a mirrored one and, or was it only the spray wall? TB2 has both a spray both. wall configuration and a mirrored one. And I, which they is so set, cool. Yeah. It's so cool. Uh, yeah. They set, I, I think it was, was it Mike, Michael Rosado set, these climbs for them and called them maybe V14 and or V and V15. So they put these three guys on two V14 or V15 climbs in the same day and bet a whopping 20 Swiss francs, which they <laughs> joked was worth a lot more than American dollars uh, and had them just go up against them. And I mean, spoiler alert, like they fucking crushed. And I guess what I was curious about, because you know, these guys, is it's it's interesting both watching their different styles on how they did the moves. Like Zach was a little smaller than Ben, and just you did you also? I don't know. Here's what I really want to ask him: Do you think those climbs were actually V15 and V14? Yeah, it's a, it's funny because in conversation, Josh and right, I'm going to put <laughs> I'm going to put Josh on the spotlight here, but Josh literally on the call was like, "I want to talk about this Borderlands video," and he's like, "By the way, those climbs look not that hard, right?" And I was like, "Okay, so very interesting, and actually, um, not a point to make funny, but it's actually a point that's really important to talk about with the TB2." I also thought before I climbed on the board, I was like, "Dude, this board looks like it's going to be soft." I would pull up climbs, and I've only sessioned on the board twice, but when I first sessioned on the board, I went through a lot of the um what do they call them? The classics or whatever. Uh, that's like their version of benchmarks might be called something else, but I think they're the classics. And I went through a lot of the classics and I flashed almost all of them. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, but this feels more, it just feels closer to gym grades, but it doesn't mean that they're not, they're like super soft or whatever, but compared to like the moon board, definitely some of the grades at that time were easier. Definitely compared to the kilter board. Some of those grades felt uh, the kilter board grades are all over the place. So I wouldn't even say, but, um, I think the left one, the one that they did on the mir the mirrored variant looked not that hard. And I think that Ben made a comment about like this shoulder movement being kind of nemesis for him. So that probably felt a lot harder than it actually was. Um, but then nobody else made a comment on that. So that's one critique that I really wanted to have was like everybody's opinions on the difficulties um, because I only heard Ben's and Ben is like, I mean, he was being honest. He was, he was talking about his style deficiency on that movement, which is a huge factor in, you know, picking understanding the difficulty of moves but in my understanding of those holds those holds are pretty good the feet were pretty good this shoulder move looked really warped but like for me i don't think it would feel that hard because usually like i like those types of moves and for even for you i don't really don't think that move would be that hard but the rest look pretty cooked like the the flip and crossing to that crimp and that crimp is so sick so here's here's kind of what i was going to say was the holds feel worse than they look and the feet are pretty bad on this board uh so the feet are all over the place but they're actually pretty bad and they have these like plastic you know kind of cool like indented feet and stuff and they're like good feet but they're not good to use like they're very hard to provide and build tension and so the move that you saw where they cross to this crimp and then like stop on this undercling and then the way that zach almost flashed the boulder but he would have been better off if he did the bicycle beta going to the side pole and then cutting feet to go for the last move the way Noah ended up doing it, which was that like far right foot bridge to get to this right hand looks insanely hard. Like I think that pivot would be really hard. So basically I think like it's hard to know how hard that is without knowing the holds. But if you didn't know the holds, you for sure would assume that it looks easier. But that V15 looked fucking hard. Like yeah, that, yeah, that one the, looked really basically, hard. Basically, so 
the first undercling is a jug, I think. And then the cross to the pinch is like, it, Mike did a really good job of explaining basically why that hold is bad. It's because it's a little slick and then you can't really get behind the hold. And so the thumb's good, but the, the top of the hold actually does feel pretty bad. And that crimp that you go out to, and the foot setup looked pretty good here, but the feet are also wood. And so a lot of the wooden feet, I found that I was slipping on those wooden feet a lot. And then one other thing that you don't, uh, for some reason, I'm really curious as to why they don't have this, but they don't have a kickboard and kickboard feet are very optimal for like pushing. And so you can have pull feet on the you know steep angle, but if you don't have a kickboard foot, it can, it can be really aggressive on the arms. And basically what my read was, was going out to this gas stone and then bumping to the next gas stone just looked insane because of the feet. And this left foot was in the perfect perch position and it was perfectly angled, but that foothold is horrible. It's so hard to use because uh, it's so slick. And so unless you have like the perfect shoe for it, which in my opinion, maybe some of them didn't, uh, like the Scarpa instincts are, I don't think are a good shoe for, the, for that board. You want, kind of, I think a softer shoe. Um, but yeah. And then the rest, those crimps are pretty bad too. Yeah. So I actually just wanted to point out because I, I know, uh, Mike, I know Michael Rosado, how, how strong he is. He set a bunch of those climbs and I guess he had tweaked them from climbs he had set before. And he definitely knows his grades. He's he's well established mm -hmm. in the thirteen range. I, I actually I have no idea what else he's climbed, but I know that he knows what he's talking about there. And it's just kind of funny. It made me think how you have these guys who are the board lords, and then you have someone like Mike demonstrating those moves, and no one knows Mike, but he's like absolutely fingers of steel too. It just just a, a little reminder of how many crazy strong people there are out there that you don't even know about. And did, I thought, did, you, did you know, hmm. sorry to interrupt. Did you, did no, you know ahead. that other guy who was the, the guy doing all the slow-mo moves uh, that wasn't Mike? Um, I don't, I don't know his name exactly. I, I think they call him Q. Um, I don't, I don't, so I don't, I don't know Q, um, but we got to get Q on the podcast or something. That guy is ridiculously strong. You should watch that again. He's the one performing all the moves. Q is probably, he's like the guy that they use as like the guy testing the moves. I don't, know if he works for tension but q's always in the tension videos and, and stuff and he is so good he's one of the best climbers i've seen that i don't really know um but just wanted to shout that out q is insanely strong <laughs> and so yeah, he's, well, he's able to do all the moves and and that also does go to show how next level those three guys were also how they you know like zach almost flashed the the hard version of that one uh something that i thought was really cool watching it is when you see really strong climbers on these boards, especially something like the moon board. And this is just par, par for the topic today. You often see people jumping and cutting, right? You, you see this like, wow, look at how big Magos can go off of the small crimps and look at what he latched and he got horizontal on that swing out. You saw some of that on the hard last moves of these climbs, like this kind of cutting style. But if you watch closely, what you'll see is insane clamping with the feet and tension for a lot of these moves and then just insane amount of weight uh, on their feet when they do some of those cross throughs and yes they cut but i just think it's always good to know that hard climbing involves both of those right <laughs> like it's like that ability to just isolate find that body position and then lock everything down so that you can come into that hold and then explode if you need to and yeah, I just, I just really wanted to highlight that because that's, first of all, that's good setting, right? Like that was good setting by, by Mike to demonstrate both ends of the spectrum. 
and also good good on the tension board for having that available. And and this is something we're going to get into when we compare some of these boards is feet. Uh, you know, one of the things about the moon board is that there are no footholds other than the the kickboard. And that really, I, I mean, clearly there are footholds because you put your feet on holds, but a foothold is something that you can't use as a hand almost by definition, right? It's not just because the color, the lights are different, but because of the actual usability of a pebble for your foot on a 40 degree wall versus, you know, a, a big juggy crimp that you put your foot on. Uh, so I don't know, just yeah. to me, that was something I really wanted to highlight in that video and showcase just how incredible those guys were and the the broad range of skills. And yeah, Tim, uh, I don't know. I just was like, is that really that hard? I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm always, I'm always a little curious. I mean, I, I think that's a good mentality yeah. whenever you watch stuff is like, you ask yourself, totally, how hard dude. is that really? Yeah. Yeah. You're making a couple of good points there that uh, I want to echo uh, about just footwork and like cool, hard climbing and hard, aggressive climbing moves and stuff, but how much beauty of balance and footwork there actually is to support those types of movements and just understanding of movement theory in general. And that's also why, in my opinion, uh, in, in my personal opinion, Zach looked better on all those climbs than Noah or Ben did. And that's because of that. You know, I think Zach has a, a deeper understanding of that's why Zach competes. It's why Zach goes, you know, Zach is a brutally strong rock climber as well, which these two other guys are. But Zach's also really good at the competitions and competitions require that deep, deep understanding of movement theory in order to replicate success on a wide variety of holds and styles. Um, but you're also making a point about the boards themselves. And I make a, a bigger point about this later, so I won't go into it. But I agree with the the kind of footwork and the footholds that you actually have on these boards is a huge kind of component of watching this climbing. And the TB2, I made a note here about the Board Lords video, that TB2 has a better opportunity to showcase one's overall climbing ability than the Kilter and Moonboard. And I think that is because of the footwork variations and the types of holes that exist. And I actually would be most interested in watching these three guys climb on the TB2 than the other two than the kilter board or the moon board and obviously there's other boards but you know for this very reason it's because if i'm watching these guys and i've watched zach i've session with zach on the kilter board and stuff but it gets really like one note and then like obvious weaknesses this show and then obvious strange because zach's like five seven you know and it's like do the kilter boards built for six foot tall climbers it just is and so if you're a six foot tall climber you're gonna have an easier time on the kilter board if you're shorter you're not gonna have a great time on the kilter board it's just one truth because of how they set but the tb2 looks like all sizes can do just like i liked that um i think he was talking about that in that video where he was like oh it's so interesting the bottom of this one's better for the scrunchy box but then it kind of opens up later and that's something that you see more in rock climbing and that's something you see in better setting where maybe it's it's fair for all sizes because Short climbers will benefit in one section, but maybe struggle later or vice versa. Yeah, and yeah. tall climbers will benefit in one section, but definitely struggle in the scrunchier box. I think that's a really good showing of good setting. But yeah, all, all really good points. And uh, yeah, and going back to what you're saying about the grades and whatnot, like I said, I think the right climb, like the harder climb that they had on the spray wall set is way harder than it looks. And uh, man, I also wanted to make a point. Uh, I make this point later, but I really like how they had to adjust the climb. I really like how Zach, immediately looks for a beta break right because he's like well you gave me holds i'm gonna i'm gonna find the best way to get up these holds and then they changed the problem which i thought was not that cool i think they should have just kept that problem as what it was because it was a cool problem and then then made the other variant harder but just call them two completely different problems because it doesn't showcase zach's like really cool find and zach's i don't know idea is like kind of just immediately muted um and then also if you read the comments um 
this other guy who uh, climbs in the Bay Area, James James Cook, very, very strong board climber, very strong on the Kilter board. He also asks the question in one of the comments, he goes, it has a lot of likes about, uh, I'm curious how hard this is compared to the hardest problems on the other boards. And I actually replied to that comment uh, this morning and I said, hard, uh, my guess is hard. Uh, I think my guess is that this V15 actually is V15 and it's harder than the vast majority of, and I just want to make this point on the podcast. Um, I think it's harder than the vast majority of hard climbs on other boards, but it looks more doable. I think that Ben makes a really good comment there. Uh, ben in the video makes a good comment where he says, each individual move doesn't feel that hard but it's so hard to do one move to another and Zach's immediately like, yeah, like, you know, and that's what that's the only thing setting. that really good climbers, <laughs> yeah, it's good setting, but also really good climbers and know the difference is like, I think climbers will immediately look at things and be like, oh, soft. And it's like, dude, when you're actually climbing on something that requires good footwork and body tension, and then you compile and it's like what eight move boulder and you compile two moves into the next two. And then those four moves in the next four, man, it's such a different experience. And I think that's what Ben, Ben just knows how to send hard boulders and like knows what hard boulders are. He's done Blade Runner, dude, that V16 up in, in upper chaos. 15. And, uh, it's V, oh, it got downgraded V15. I don't know. I thought it always was. That, that thing's the left of Jade, right? That goes into. To the left of Jade. Yeah. yeah. Is it V15? Our, oh, it's stupid, Tim. It's also, isn't that closed now? It's like, that. Closed. You can call it 16. And then you can't climb uh, there anymore. Yeah, uh, dude, but got very rarely done and looked very hard. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I really, I said this when we talked about Sean and Brooke on the moonboard. I wanted to see them on really hard climbs on the moonboard. I, I keep wondering about when I had my my time on the 2019 set, and I I did them all. Uh, at the time, there's since been a lot more boulders added. When I was on it, there was a max of two. 219 boulders i want to say and i did all all of them except for the last two and they were v13 at the time and one was flows v13 that seemed a little more doable and had seen a, a, at least one repeat and then there was aiden roberts v13 that seemed so hard to me dude i just i i was in shape i mean clearly i did literally all the other ones and i was working on that one and in my head i I thought I could possibly do it, but it just seemed extremely difficult. And so I guess this is where I'm wondering about that comment that got made by James is, yeah, how how does that compare? Like, I want to see Zach on that. And I, I think he yeah. can do it. I'm not saying he can't do it. I just, I want to know what it's like. And dude, this also just, I got to bring it up to him. I made that post about on Instagram, right? I clipped our... I clipped a little reel from a podcast we did number 70, I want to say about route setting. And we were talking, I made some comment about how moonboard problems often suck, like how they, they're, they actually aren't set that well, but there are ones that are set really well. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because just what you were talking about with these climbs that were really hard, but they seemed more doable because they made sense and there was options and there were feet and, you know, when you have this awkward move, that's just one foot and you just launch. And maybe if you're six foot, it's possible. Maybe if you're five, two, it's never possible or something. And that's, that's part of the quality there. And that idea of do doability or linking consistent hard moves together that all feel barely doable at your limit. And then that stacking of it and finding that next body position when coming out of the other body position is really difficult. To me, that's good setting. And you know, I got a lot of 
angry comments. Uh, my, my favorite <laughs> one was this guy who said that I must be too weak to appreciate what good setting is, is and that all the, the climbs, the benchmarks were good. And just that I was too weak to appreciate them. And I don't know. Uh, I mean, maybe he's right. Like I, I couldn't do them all, but I don't know. I, I, I think that I think there's a lot more agreement that moonboard as someone who just loves the moonboard. I mean, I built two in my life at my home. So clearly I love it. If you guys can't acknowledge that some of the setting on the benchmarks is not that good. I just, I don't know if I can save you. I think you're lost. <laughs> yeah. I think that comment is, is horrendous personally. Sorry. Um, but I think the reason why I think that is because I agree with you in that, uh, Yes, benchmarks are supposed to stand for what the grade is supposed to be, but it doesn't mean that because these things say benchmark that those are law. Okay, or that I think great grades climbs. in general, just, or or that just, they're great climbs that they're entirely. Yeah, yeah. There's so many exclusive, you know, factors of of climbs and route setting and and stuff. But when we're talking about difficulty, we're talking about difficulty. When we're talking about benchmark grades. We're talking about benchmark grades, and we're talking about consensus. We're talking about consensus. We're talking about quality of route setting. We're talking about quality of route setting. But anyway, I think that comment is uh, really I don't know. It's just quick. It's like a quick comment, and so um, hopefully you guys can all digest information for yourselves and and make your own judgments about like what we're saying but that's not what we're saying <laughs> at all and and we're definitely not too weak to appreciate v4 on the board i've done all of them and i've never fallen on a, on a well, v4 on the board but i just know my objective feelings about also <laughs> i, I want to point out that that also means that there's climbs that aren't benchmarks that are have a higher they're higher quality than climbs 100%. that are benchmarks just because something is a 100%. benchmark does not mean it is the best Climb now. You you hope that the process going on behind the scenes, and I, I know some of the people that get to select those benchmarks that they're they're able to curate something, but also like you know, or curate the best of the best to put in those grades. But sometimes just this idea of benchmarking and and you know, think of the board as training may not be always around the quality of the climb. It may be demonstrating a proficiency of a certain type of move on a certain type of holds. And, and I appreciate that too. It's it's literally, there's sometimes climbs that will be named something along the lines of, I love this hold or owning E14 or mm-hmm. something. And it's just this idea that what you're demonstrating is proficiency with this hold. And that's fine. I, I have, again, I freaking love the moon board, but I love what you said quality is quality, difficulty is difficulty. And so when you say benchmark V10, it does not mean that's the best V10 in the world. It just means that is a V10 climb that got selected as a benchmark. And it's, you know, that's, that's all, that's it. Anyways, my my little rant, I maybe do actually, maybe they hit or maybe I, I don't know. Maybe they got me. They got, they got got me for sure. Yeah. I want to backtrack a bit because you unearthed a couple of really good insights when it came to this discussion that James was bringing up about the difficulties. And then you're talking about the, the AR problem, the Aiden Roberts climb. Uh, I forgot the name of it, but the art of the moment or something. The the art of the moment is the flow is the, is the flow of V13. I think I downgrade, but yeah. Is that the one that you cross to the tiny crimp and then you jump to the weird wooden one and then you campus to the flat rail and then you top like the Uh, most insane that yeah you're talking about yeah you go gaston and you kind of jump to a pretty decent hold yep. you flip it and hand foot match and like do a wild lock off the wood a uh, wood Dude. match that and go but flow had yeah flows was the art of the moment and you use i think ah, 
I don't know if you use the same old, you use that tiny little block wooden pinch. Anyways, yeah, uh, I can't remember what Aiden Roberts is, uh, but it's it, anyone who, you know, go look it up, Aiden Roberts V12 or V13 on the 2019 set, which he yeah. did at the Moonboard Masters competition. So uh, it's pretty iconic. It's like yeah. the hard boulder on there, in my opinion. Pretty, pretty insane. Um, like it is pretty insane, but I actually would still make an argument that this board climb that is in the board Lords video is harder. And so I think you're, you're making wow. a really good couple of insights because, um, what you're talking about is the perception, man, I love what you're saying, Josh, like the perception of these things is easier for us to comprehend because the moves make sense. Right. And that's really cool. Something I've learned in trying harder climbs lately is that, Hmm. Like the holds still are pretty good. Like the footholds are still pretty good. The moves make a lot of sense, but they're just hard. Like they're just so hard to perform, but they still make sense. And therefore you always try, but for specifically on like sleepwalker, for example, or like lucid dreaming. Yeah. The moves are very, very obvious, very, you know, like there aren't that many ways to do it, but there's so many little intricacies and little subtleties that can make a movement easier or harder. And that's really what amounts to doing these problems, right? Versus the the one really, really hard kind of like three move boulder problem on the moon board. And, and for that matter, a lot of climbs on the moon board, for example, are these awkward positions. And that's kind of the point. That's the point of moon boarding, in my opinion, is to create movement out of unideal, non-obvious positions without feet that provide you the move. Because just doing a move with an obvious foothold is like, oh, that's the foothold you're supposed to use and that's the move you're supposed to do. That's a different type of climbing than the moonboard. The moonboard is these un non-optimal positions with non-optimal foot, you know, foot choices, and then you create this movement. But at the same time, I think that the factors that allow that climb to be so hard are a lot simpler, right? Like this one moonboard movement, if you were really, 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 really strong and really good at that, I think that climb would not be that crazy. That's just like my read. But no matter how strong you are on this TB2 type of climb, it still will be really difficult. And I find that to be really good climbing, really good route setting, more fun, more enjoyable. And and Mike kind of talks about that in the beginning of the video as well. And in terms of making these climbs, he's like, these climbs are pretty easy to make. They're just like, I don't know, the same moves as, you know, what we would be doing on easier climbs, but just like more difficult, you know, and then you just stack them and it's pretty easy to make hard climbs. It really is. And I actually made that point a lot when we were climbing at Planet Grant in Sunnyvale. We did always, after a certain point in time is a long story, but basically after a certain point in time, we always had like a V14 or harder up. And when I started route setting, I was allowed to put up like 14s, 15s, maybe even harder than that. And it's not like these climbs would look impossible or insane. They just were actually really difficult. But the moves looked very, you could read them, you can find all these sequences and whatnot. But that's, in my opinion, what better route setting is. And honestly, better climbing, it teaches you better, it teaches you how to, and I think that's also why stronger climbers obsess more outdoors and training outdoors, because that's where you're going to find more like intricate climbing right if you just train on the boards you're training board climbing right and then yeah. and then you translate that somewhere else maybe you know and, and i don't feel one way about training one way first or anything but you know there's a reason why i think climbers who are really really good stay on just really hard climbs that are high quality outside it does make me think of a bias that you may probably have there where if you were to set something in the v15 range yeah you still use holds that are grabbable it's not like you put just uh, like eight razors on the wall and say good luck 
it's it's like here's a decent hold. It's not that good. And his feet, there's feet, but they're not that good. And you know this move, but how do you make it work when the feet and the hands aren't that good? Like it makes sense. It's just hard to put it together. But then I guess just to play devil's advocate on it, there is something really interesting about something like the that moonboard problem by Aiden Roberts, where it's like, okay, but what if I just give you this hold and this foot and it's just unbelievably far and hard you just like this sure. one move or these two moves and i i don't have a good answer to that because it made me think about playing devil's advocate when you're talking about the the moon board and making something really hard by having an awkward position it made me think of i don't know if jamie emerson i don't know if this is his actual quote or if he took this from someone this idea of there's no awkward climbs there's only awkward climbers because you know in that post mm -hmm. i made i say moon board problems suck uh, or it can can suck, but there is something to learn from those certain specific awkward moves. And mm -hmm. what it made me think, though, where you said if you're just brutally strong on those, you can just get it done. Versus all those guys were brutally strong on the tension board, but that that was necessary, but not sufficient for climbing that kind of V15 style. Where on the moon board and Aiden Roberts's move being strong enough was probably necessary and sufficient. Like, yes, you need to have yep. some climbing exactly. IQ, but honestly, it was, there was a lot of, here's your right hand, your hand foot matching. Just, just fucking go. Like, are you strong enough? Yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, just to finish up that thought, like, and yeah. you know, I've gone in deep on how single movements on the moon board, even though it's very narrow, how you can start peeling layer after layer after layer of optimizing those small little things. But there is an element of there's just less factors going on when you have one hard move with one foot where you saw, you actually saw on those tension climbs, really different styles. I actually really loved watching Noah climb. I thought mm -hmm. I really liked his I don't know, man. He had something really well. He was brutally strong, and I'm sure his fingers are brutally strong. But his whole body had this rigidity that I really enjoyed watching. So, uh, yeah, that, that's I don't know. I, I I don't know if I came to any great answers there, but what I like doing is kind of trying to steel man both sides and saying, okay, mm -hmm. you know, what are what are the two sides and what do they showcase and what's what's the best argument on maybe what's more fun, like the multiple sequences of similar difficulties that are anyways. Yeah. I digress. Yeah. And I do want to make one point here cause it's pretty interesting. Um, I personally have fun on both styles, you know, the straightforward two movers that have no beta reading whatsoever. And then I have a lot of fun in this like really solving style. And since I was a kid, I've, I've always enjoyed that. And I'm not one to say that one's better or worse than the other. But for the sake of the conversation of difficulty, when we're talking about difficulty, the simpler the climb, the more we should see for the perfect ideal strength and the ideal style, what grade is it? Because as the simpler the climb gets, the less you can cheat the climb, right? And so going back to that, well, you know, Josh is talking about that one podcast that got roasted. <laughs> cheating, cheating exists in climbing. It just does, right? And so that's why that's why Josh made that tip because the stronger you are and the better you are at climbing, the more you're cheating up climbs, right? You're just doing it the way that you can get up the wall, right? There's no... There's no Tim tells you that's the that's the way and you do it. No, like we're looking up. All of us are finding the best way to get up the wall, right? 
And so therefore, and that's why I make that comment where Zach immediately finding a beta break is like, that's good climbing, but he's cheating the climb. He's not doing it the way they intended it. Therefore, they fixed it, right? To make it less cheatable. But hey, let's face it, we're trying to cheat, right? We are trying to do that, right? And so there's just no cheating available or very, very, very little cheating available on the moon board. Therefore, you're going to get a very raw grade. You're going to get a very, very raw grade of exactly how difficult this climb is. But that's a difference in all the, and this is, dude, this is such a nuanced conversation. Like this is such a nuanced conversation. Most of us aren't going to really be in line in how we think about this stuff. So don't try to cause beef in our comments and stuff. Like we're just trying no, to solve fun. this extremely nuanced conversation. Uh, it is funny. But I love those comments. Be, but be careful. But be careful. I'm going to come back and, <laughs> and tell you exactly what I think about your comment. Um, and, and I'm not afraid to, you know, I'm not afraid to talk about that stuff, but. Uh, I do think there's a nuanced conversation and the difference in difficulties are still being discovered. It actually goes um, well into my pro tip. Um, if you don't mind, Josh, if I can just go straight into my pro tip. Pro tip it up, dog. I'll pro tip it up. Um, okay, here's my pro tip. Take a second to remove yourself from the grade concept or at least discover the grade for yourself rather than listen to it as law, especially on the boards. So hand in hand with what we're talking about right now. And I mean more for your guys' climbing and for you know my climbing as well. Aside from the fact that grades are mostly primary subjective opinions backed up by more subjective opinion, which then becomes consensus. I'm just telling you what grades kind of are. There's And so in parentheses, I also write, there's no objective metric yet for grading. Okay, so grades are rarely accurate or standard. Okay, this also goes hand in hand with that comment that we got that I'm totally beefing with. Uh, I said, uh, aside from the fact that grades are mostly these subjective opinions, which then become consensus, your focus will drift if that's a thought in your mind, just a truth. And for me, grades can often adjust my level of effort to match what I think the grade is. (laughs) Um, And my best attempts, and basically grades for me can adjust my level of effort to match the grade I think I am trying. And so my best attempts are when I focus on the moves and how to move between holds and then thinking about how difficult they are and then kind of going off of that. And grades are just a good way to be in the realm of difficulty. You can climb, but you still need to solve the boulder and try hard. I think that's a a kind of thing I was noticing. Uh, I made a comment about this board Lords video that I think that it was not an ideal environment to try that hard. And also just giving you, especially for someone like Noah, who's maybe younger, or like not around cameras as much. And like, obviously Zach had an easier time just like going for it and trying hard. Ben seemed to not care that much and like have a chiller environment attitude. But honestly, if you want to see Noah climb the best, you got to put him in a focused environment, which doesn't focus around grades, doesn't focus around a video. Um, but you can see the difference in attempts as soon as Noah just focuses, right? And just focuses on that. But going back to kind of my point earlier, I think grades are a huge factor here. And they're talking so much about grades, but honestly, the best climbing will happen when you're removing yourself from that concept. And and like I said, I adjust to that. Dude, I... I hear you loud and clear, and I am guilty of that. And I, I, I just want to ask you a little bit more on that because I was just nodding my head, agreeing, and I was going to say, this is why I like highballs. This is why I like competition is because you're just in it. You, you just, you're trying your hardest to climb your best because your life depends on it. And grades go out the window. You, you <laughs> like, imagine you're on top of some, giant boulder and you're in no fall zone and someone i I mean it does help when someone yells hey like dude it's only like v2 or v3 but when you're up there (laughs) that is not how you're thinking you're not thinking yourself oh i'm chill this is v2 you're looking at that foot you're thinking that foot's not that fucking good like if i blow this foot i'm gonna die 
And you do not ask yourself what you would do on the V2. You ask yourself, what can I do right here that channels all of my best climbing so that I don't freaking die? So I was totally agreeing with that. I just want to ask you one question on that because you have more you have more sport climbing background than than I do. And so I understand that position where I'm literally fearing for my life and I'm bringing out the best of my climbing and I'm trying the hardest I can. But when you think about that in in moments other than, or, or taking that same concept, maybe in relation to the whole boulder or the whole route, and maybe you're flashing or you're on, on sighting, how do you know when to give that move every little bit you got, you know, your V20 try hard versus making sure that you're climbing smoothly and using as little energy as possible. And you can see how this factors into grades because if if you're climbing V20, but the move is a V2, you shouldn't be blowing your wad on the easy part before you get to the hard part. And just, do you have any insight into how to balance that? Oof, dude, that is a really good question. Uh, and I think it's a really good question. I do have an answer for it, but it's a very loaded answer. And it's a tough question to to ask. But basically, um, and I'm going to try. Basically, I think the ideal approach to climbing in general for a performance rip on you know your first try or your first couple of tries and when you have very limited it's easy to try really hard when i like what you're saying when somebody tells you the exact spray even the exact little factors and when i climb with someone like you for example and i go to tahoe and i'm like going to go and try something that you know well you're able to tell me all of the factors like all the things that you're saying that are missing on like a first try right where it's like oh but there it's going to be pretty so make sure you focus on the like they're literally so, if you watch really experienced climbers spray really good performance climbers. It's like magic. These guys are like, yeah, yeah, do this. And it's like, and I know exactly what you're talking about. And I probably will have an amazing flash rip. And that little kind of gray component, what you're talking about, my effort level will be pretty cranked to the maximum. But, and I am a sport climber and I usually do well in sport climbing competitions, which is all one tries. Um, I do find myself like, with a high level effort when necessary and a low level of effort when not necessary. And I'll tell you kind of a general, a general way to look at that, but it's not general. I'll tell you that just firsthand. It takes years and years and years of practice. It takes years and years and years of failure to understand what doesn't work and what does work, but I'll give you a general. Okay. The first general is being relaxed and aroused at the same time and not aroused sexually you you weirdos uh, aroused there's there's actual hormonal arousal that happens in performance and a state of arousal is necessary right but also a state of relaxation and having flow you know that's why ross and i are pretty obsessed with that concept ross is very obsessed with that concept of flow but we both came from the same gym and we trained together a lot as kids and we both knew that the mental flow was really important but flow in my coach adriel uh, Adriel Rodriguez, who's now a setter in San Diego, I think. Uh, my coach always brought up Bruce Lee uh, and and kung fu concepts for me because he thought that it would work best for me. He's like, I want to remind you that flow isn't just being relaxed. Flow is allowing the water to go where the water goes, right? And so if there's a blockage in this slide that you're pouring water down, that's where the water goes, and that's flow. And so that's the perfect way to see climbing, in my opinion, is be relaxed and ready for things to happen. And when you think when you see things, you must react to them properly, not be, you know, 
bothered, not be reactive in a panic way. You need to make calculated decisions and so, and aggressively and be confident in those decisions, right? And so that's a, a very deep prerequisite for understanding climbing uh, and understanding yourself as a person. And I think that what I've noticed in coaching uh, and watching competitive athletes as well, comparing myself, you know, out of a field of a hundred to see what could I do better than these one other 100 climbers who are all really good and really practiced and trying really hard to do their best on the wall. What do I need to do to stand out? And for me, the biggest thing was flow. It was really just realizing that hmm, maybe my emotions and my reactions aren't actually that good. Okay. Maybe, maybe my reactions aren't actually what I think they're supposed to be or what they actually end up being. And so maybe the best approach is not to deconstruct my reactions, not to deconstruct how I feel, but rather have a full clarity. And this is how I coach young athletes. Okay. There's a lot of insight into a very, very deep nuanced field of performance coaching is every athlete I work with at first, I provide a state of clarity. And so I teach them how to meditate. I teach them how to be aware of their past week, their relationship lives their relationships with their families, because all these things are factors in how you're going to climb. Uh, how you feel about the climbs. Like, do you feel good? Do you feel bad? Are you feeling way too good about it? Are you getting cocky about how you feel on these holds and whatnot? Because all those things are factors. Like I said, the ideal state is flow and an awareness, right? And so, and then making choices then. So I guess basically the way that I would structure that is figuring out yourself as a person. Do you know that you are in general very cocky and arrogant about things and you usually get humbled? Are you way too low-key? You're way too chill and you're way too humble and you don't rise to the occasion often. Do you know yourself do you know yourself well enough to make an adjustment mentally to preset your headspace because that headspace approaching a climb is very important. Okay, and then do you know during the climb are you calm enough to not react to negative feelings like being pumped, being tired, being scared? Are, are you able to digest those and funnel them into a place where you can make smart decisions? And then the third step there is making decisions, right? Making decisions is easy. Like I said, if somebody explains to you all those factors and somebody explains to you what the decisions are, people tend to have an easy time cranking to 100, right? And that's what your question kind of revolves around is that third step. But those first and second steps are more important, in my opinion, because it just makes the third step easier. Well, that's why when you have someone just kind of marionetting you and telling you exactly the beta and you have that confidence, it lets you commit to those yeah, decisions. Yeah. Dude, I, uh, when you're talking about explaining beta to people and how sometimes you have that, <laughs> that connection with someone that, you know, usually a higher level climber, it makes me think of going to jailhouse, which is this blocky place. That's like, so it's really hard to to read in jailhouse and if you it's a sport climbing crag in Son, sonora sonora sonoma sonora mm. uh and it's an amazing crag but i would go there with walker emerson who you you know walker great great climber oh, yeah. all around climber travel the world with that guy wonderful guy great setter great setter and he knew all the beta so well and i'll never forget climbing i'm you know i'm halfway up a climb i start getting pumped and he's he says, okay, like foot out right. No, not that foot that you think it is. It's around the corner and up. And just in his head, he's explaining to me, it, it's like, you go, oh, that's the foot. And he goes, no, I know what you're thinking. It's not that foot that you think it is. It's up. And it was so cool having that that high bandwidth conversation. But I, I want to touch on to your point of flow because flow is one of the best feelings in the world. 
It really is. It's just one of the best feelings in the world. And I, I may link some some books on flow. Uh, and there's been a lot of research on it and how to achieve it. And it, it's it's deeply enjoyable. But I also want to get practical and acknowledge that sometimes you fall out of flow. Like it's nice to say, hey, hey, bruh, just just flow. Just <laughs> just let it go, dude. Just, you know. Wherever the water goes, it just, I mean, I know what you're saying. It's like meditate a little bit. Uh, anyways, the damn it, dude. Well, here, I, I mean, you sound, you've got a very Sharma esque recommendation here. It's like, just, just let it flow, bro. But the, the thing is, is that I agree with you. And I've had some of those moments, especially when danger comes, uh, into, into the, into the picture or, you know, when you pull on and you just have one of those moments where you just go, oh, this time, and it feels great. But uh, I, I just, because I like what we do here where we tell tell the truth and things don't always work out quite like that. And it, it makes me think of, I think a podcast we did about performance under pressure or something like that. And sometimes you just get kicked out of that moment, you know, and there's this recognition you said where, just responding to things as they come. And, you know, maybe that hold didn't feel so good, but you just kind of went with it and still committed to your beta and boom, boom, boom. Like you're taking it all in and you're just moving and, and feeling good and, and cruising. But sometimes you just, it's just not like that. And I, I, I'm going to repeat, I think what I said in that podcast, where when you get knocked out of flow, maybe you get scared or you get tired, you're more pumped. Things don't go as, 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 as you, expected them to, or as that you hoped that they would go. And for me, how I kind of think about this is that flow is that intuition, but we talk about how you also need to be analytical with your climbing. So maybe do what your body tells you, but then that doesn't always work. And knowing what to do when all of a sudden your intuition or flow state isn't, isn't going quite so well. And this is where coming back to both mechanics, like your basic understanding of climbing, and also your understanding of yourself and your bad tendencies. So the example I'll use, and it's a really classic one, is you're above your bolt, or maybe you're off the deck, and you're pumped and you're scared. And what people do there is they take weight off their feet. When I say people, I mean me, but I also mean people. It's probably you. It's probably everyone. And you start also throwing for holds instead of using intermediates getting a little dynamic, basically hoping that that next hold is a jug and will save you. And so if you find yourself getting knocked out of flow, double down on the things that you know you should be doing. Oh, you know this is the foot? Okay, put more weight on it than you think you should. Oh, you know that like you have a tendency to jump to that chalky hold? Don't jump to it. Take your time, find the intermediate, move slowly. And I just... Uh, you know, I don't disagree with what you're saying, Tim. I just want to give mm -hmm. people that next layer how, you know, yeah, I love those beautiful moments too, but they don't always happen for me. I think that's so great. I think, uh, yeah, I've been nodding my head for like two minutes straight because <laughs> like, I think what you're saying is so perfect and beautiful. And I think what I just said about the flow and, you know, to answer your question, uh, to, you know, what I was saying to answer your question, I think is, 
money and it's a good concept, but it's actually nothing without this other side of the reality. And I think I made this point in the midst of what I was saying. And I was just so, so in flow when I was just like spraying about, <laughs> dude, I was just like off the dog, like no rehearsal. Like I write notes for a lot of the stuff that we talk about, but that, that I was not ready for. And I was like, oh shit, this is a deep, deep, deep question for me. Uh, and, it, and it's also very core. Like it is a part of every instruction I have ever given, Josh, every instruction I've ever given includes this concept. Maybe it's not, you know, circled and written out for people to understand. And maybe people wouldn't, if, if they've been coached by me, be like, oh, no, never. No, but it's all under that core concept. Right. And, and also for me as a, my job as a coach is to understand where your flow leaks, right? Like what leak does it come from? Cause like I said, sometimes people are mastering this first step, but just suck at the second step and the third step's good. Some people, and, and so whatever, wherever you leak is where I'm going to kind of help you. Um, but you're making a beautiful point there as to, and I, and I make this point when I'm talking about it, it takes years, it takes years, years and years and years and years. Climbing is beautiful. It's the best sport in the world, in my opinion, because there's so much learning. There's so much theory on just like, what do you do when you grab this side pole? Like, oh, we got to look for those feet. It's like, oh, when you have these feet, how are you supposed to go up? It's like, oh, well, you got to drive, man. You got to build momentum. You got to keep this foot. I was like, but what if the foot's too far? It's like, well, then you got to do something. You got a handheld match. You, there's so much learning. There's so much theory for climbing, right? But there's also theory and performance, right? And performance is kind of the other side. And I think performance is a buildup of habits and an understanding of what habits are good and bad. And then jumping on those habits over practice. That's what I see in really, really high level athletes. There's a difference in climbing that I've noticed in the last 10 or 20 years and why I've leaned myself personally. And I, and, and you're saying that everybody runs into this high on the head walls of lead roots and stuff. I don't, not anymore. And what? I'm not saying that to, you know, <laughs> gloat or anything, but what I don't anymore because I have practiced over years and years and years and years of when I used, when I used to for many, many years in competitions, you know, even on high balls, I've run into this concept where I'm like, Oh, sh you know, like, what do, I, what do I do here? It's like, and then my body will react, but my brain has a different, it's disassociated from my body, right? My brain is not just because my body feels something or is telling me to do something doesn't mean my brain has to react to it. I can then make a decision to then react to what my body is saying. And I usually disagree with my body. Okay. My body will feel something and I usually disagree. And I say, no, this is the smarter thing to do, but that's due through deep practice and a deep understanding of what is supposed to happen, quote unquote. Right. But what I was trying to make a point on is athletes in climbing and climbers who are good at climbing are totally different to me, you know, watching like competitive climbers. And you've always made this point, Josh, that, you know, you always say, it's funny that I think that comp climbers could go out and do hard rock climbs pretty quickly, but maybe hard, strong rock climbers wouldn't go to comps and necessarily do that well in comps, which is hundred percent true. And what you're pointing at is the difference between performance, right? And just climbing well and understanding deep climbing theory. And like I'm saying, and I think a lot of climbers will understand this better because of what this kind of the note, what we're talking about here is if somebody sprays you as well as Walker Emerson can spray you at jailhouse. And, and by the way, Evan Pierce was another coach and he was the manager at Sunnyvale for a while. He took me to jailhouse one time and sorry, another tangent story, but he put me on slammer and did the exact same thing. Slammers is 13 C on the right side. And he was looking down and was, and I was like watching and he was spraying perfectly. He was like, yeah, not that one, but this one, and you're going to be spread out, but then you just go to this. Don't worry. It's going to be better. It's like, literally they can tell you the worries you're going to have. They can tell you the things you're going to feel that are bad. And that makes you feel better and more confident about going for the thing that you know you're supposed to do. And that's that kind of connection between like what you're supposed to do, what you feel like is actually happening. And then going back to what you're supposed to do and then actually reacting to it. 
And yeah, that can be solved by having a deep understanding of theory. Yeah, that can be solved by trying something over and over again and realizing what works and what doesn't work. But what also can be solved by is having the state of flow, practicing practicing the awareness things, practicing correct decisions and actually committing for those things, right? That's why we practice those things. There's a difference between training climbing and training performance. And I think that's kind of the way I wanted to answer your question was there's just a difference between those two things. And so when you're kind of going into, I guess this question sprouted from my pro tip about um, like what your best attempts come from and removing those external factors and whatnot. I think those external factors are very relevant and you know, everybody reacts to those external factors and right. And so, and including myself, I have, and I still do react to those external factors. And I like that you're bringing up highballing and comp sport climbing as, you know, maybe a different, even a different sport, a different activity in our sport. And I totally agree. And I've also answered this question so many times people are always like, yeah, is that grade on the highball? Like, you know, actually a good representation of what you're climbing. I'm like, no, it's not, dude, it's, it's obvious. That's not what, and I like how you're explaining it. Cause it's like, who cares that it's a V2 move on the top of something you feel insecure and it's hard to connect to that thing. It's hard to commit to it. Okay. So there's all these other factors that we know are difficulty. It's an aspect of difficulty. That's performance. Why aren't those part of the grade? Right. Well, that's a huge beef that I've always had in well, climbing. It's where, because like, it's a, a V grade. <laughs> that's like the whole point. If you talk about E grades it, right. that of course, are supposed of course. to represent the whole experience. And I always think that, I mean, dude, this is our scale and, and, and we're stuck with it, uh, for better, or for worse. Mm. And I, I think it makes it fun where you can talk about some climb and those who know, know, and those who don't know, don't know. And I, I think totally. about this V2 in Leavenworth called Hesitator and it's a highball V2 and it's nice. really mellow. But then at the top, you have to make this lerp to a good hold. And it's just, it's a V2 move, but it's a V2 move up there and you cannot stack it unless you're tall enough. And, and, you know, you'd have to be very tall and just, so it's just a V2 and it's just a high ball, but that particular V2 high ball requires a specific moment where you have to go for it. And I just, I kind of, I actually think people are always looking to make grades represent everything and I actually think that takes some of the fun out of it. I, I, I often use the analogy of baseball where different baseball, I, I think that all baseball diamonds are the same size and all the home run wall is the same size, but how high that home run wall is different. Mm. And so your ability to hit a home run in one place might be different than the other, even though it's the same 350 feet. I have no idea how far it is. Just please don't. Don't tell me how wrong I am about baseball. But uh, so I, I like that. I think that's like fun. Uh, and yeah, so I'm going to transition us back into the board climbing world because it's still a massive topic, but at least I feel like we're already kind of tackling it tangentially, t- tangentially. I don't know. That's a big word. And I check this out. Okay. Tim, you're talking about flow. Well, I wanted to talk about <laughs> flow. Went is doing floating that V16, which just hit the news. I, I, it's I a, a great, I got a mute. That was a great transition, dude. Uh, so I, it, there's nothing crazy to talk about. It's just this news that just seemed right in line with what we were talking about today in boards and flow. I just, his name hit my radar because he was a amazing moonboard setter and he set that v13 in 2019 on the 2019 set called the art of the moment he's just he's always top of the charts in those rankings 
But Floatin is this V16 that went up in Japan that just, I don't know, it just looked sick. It has this kind of campus. It's like a big dyno to a tiny pocket and you campus under and recycle. And it was V16 and it just looked sick and improbable. And it's so cool seeing him go and do that. And it kind of looked like this classic moonboard style problem at the the highest of the grades really available. And I remember one of his comments on an inter- interview he did, he said that the holds were worse than he thought they were going to be. It just made me wonder, wow. like here, like what is that like? I, and he did it relatively quickly. And I think it was the second or third ascent. He, he did it relatively quickly. So it's just interesting when we're talking about grades and boards and V16, V15 on boards and Flo went and kind of crushed this. And he's a great climber already. I mean, I know I, I, the last thing I remember seeing him do on 8A, this is not a scorecard, just the news I saw him do off the wagon. So I, it's, he's clearly an incredibly good climber and accomplished climber. But I just, I, I'm fascinated. It, it's, it's one of the few times where I've seen someone who I, I identify as a, a moon boarder or a board climber, a board lord, go and climb a V16 kind of, and not just repeat something that everyone has done, but that, that floating kind of, kind of stood out as something really interesting and unique and hard. And it was, I, I guess for me, when I saw that go down, I really wondered how hard it was because in, in the sense of, is this actually, I wonder on both sides, is this actually unbelievably hard? Because the Japanese are kind of known for just that kind of single move, really hard, you know, finger power, but really perfect dynamic movement. They, I mean, I'm making a generalization here, but I would argue that as a whole, there's many very strong Japanese climbers on that style. And so I wondered, is this absolutely insanely hard? And then seeing someone come out of the woodworks and in the moonboard world, go and repeat that. And I just thought it was a really cool story. It got me kind of psyched on, on boards in general. I was like, wow, uh, big deal. So good job, Flo. Yeah. Um, psych for him. That's super cool. Uh, I think you did a good job covering that. So I won't go deep into my echoing. But uh, one thing that I do find really interesting is I'm having a lot more insight because I'm trying some harder climbing. And one thing I've noticed about Sleepwalker specifically, because um, that and Grand Illusion are the only you know V16s that I've tried. But uh, on those climbs, it becomes, uh, you start to realize that damn you need to be strong enough to even try these movements and you also need to be like in a really good you know state of skin and freshness and like my sessions will go very quickly where i like won't even look like i can do some of the movements within like an hour or two but then you know in the very first like 30 minutes or whatever i'm looking really really good on these things and basically the thing that is consistent there and something i want to relate to zach gala looking on these boards zach can make climbs look soft uh, it's just really a, a very common thing about watching Zach Gala climb specifically. And it's because of how easy those things look, uh, or it's just like how easy, uh, difficult mechanics look like simpler mechanics on the board and stuff. And you'll watch strong climbers all the time. And you know what I'm talking about? They just look like they're floating and stuff. You know, people have said that about me sometimes in, in certain things, but probably not on the moon board, <laughs> but flow is someone that I also classify for a very long time as one of the best board climbers. Anytime I saw a climb that was new on the moon boards or when I picked up like 2019 set, 
I did look for all the flow climbs because he's he just sets really well and you know he's clearly strong as hell. And so the point I'm making there is when he goes to floating, and I I also naturally would be very curious like oh is it softer like you know maybe it's not that crazy hard. But then you have to remember that man the prerequisite to even probably pulling on any of those moves you probably already have to have such a high standard of strength and then maybe it doesn't look so hard. And then climbing is just like that. Like at the higher grades, climbing just becomes about a prerequisite of trying something and then solving it at that standard. And that's why I've always talked about climbing as, you know, maybe it's better to represent a climber's ability and strengths by, for me, an understanding of a belt system and understanding how good this climber is and then what they can do in certain tests. But we naturally so far in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years have used those tests to give someone a resume, which then tells us their climbing ability. I don't necessarily think that's true. We know that Flo's really good at that style and he's black belt in the board style. And so therefore, when we go, when he goes and tries climbs that have those metrics or that type of test, he's going to look really, really, really good on it, right? And so for that matter, also, if he went to go try a comp boulder or whatever, and certain belts were required for that, maybe he wouldn't look so good. And that's probably true, actually. And that happens all the time. That happens all the time. You know, I won't name names, but you'll watch a lot of pro climbers try a variety of styles and you're like, oh, okay. So you're not, you're not like Chris Sharma. You're not the best at every, or you're not like Adam Andra. And Adam Andra is a good example, example of black belt and of wide, 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 wide net of varieties of styles and varieties of hold types and performance scenarios and whatnot. Right. And that's why we appreciate him so much. But yeah, kind of the point there that I'm trying to make is if you have a really high level of belt in one style or one type of climbing, maybe you will make a V16 look really chill but doesn't mean it's soft i think i think we would probably you and i probably go up to float and be like oh damn oh i get my ass <laughs> oh, damn. i actually i actually when i was questioning the grade i actually wondered also if it was even harder i i, I wondered if this was one mm. of the harder single move climb or you know two move climbs out there and you know time will tell uh yeah i do think it's interesting this idea of hard climbs looking easy and sometimes I look back on videos of my harder climbs and they often look really easy when I do them. And there's two things I've, I've taken from that where good technique is how you do hard climbs. And it's just, you know, it looks easy when you do it. But then I also wonder if maybe I'm not pushing myself quite enough where perhaps, you know, I'm, I, I need to really find that ultimate limit where I'm just barely grasping climbs. I mean, I've had climbs where they weren't, perfect and didn't go exactly as planned. But honestly, most of my harder climbs look really easy. And the the other thing that I think is interesting, because most of the time when we see media, we just see this video, looks great, good job, you know, to whoever did it. But sometimes we just get a glimpse of this, but often behind the scenes, things didn't feel like they looked. And, and I know on a lot of the moonboard climbs I do, where I often will do the climb but I will have gotten some finishing hold terrible. And I just, I just can't believe I actually pulled it off. But in the video, it looks fine. They go like, what do you mean? Uh, yeah, it'll happen to me all the time. I'll come down. And I'll be like, oh, dude, I can't believe I, did you see how bad I had that hold? And they're like, no, look great. Look, you made it look easy. I was like, dude, I thought I was out of there. And it's just kind of interesting how it's one of the reasons why I like these longer form podcasts and getting to hear blow by blows is because seeing people float floating 
may not fully describe what it was like for them and how it actually went. And yeah, maybe, maybe someday we'll yeah. have flow on. I know I'd love to talk to, to Zach in the not too distant future when he has time yeah. off the world cup. Yeah, that's a good point you're making. Uh, you made a very interesting, I promise this will um, collide into what we're okay. talking about and I'll transition <laughs> it also into our topic, but uh, you made a comment really interesting one time. I forget if it was on a podcast or in a classroom that we did, but you said, or maybe it was a pro tip, but you said, don't major in the minors in climbing. Right. And the, the minors, we can talk about the minors, but um or that's somewhere. And uh, it's a very interesting point. I won't go into it because it's long, but basically Josh is saying don't major in the minors. And I think that's a really interesting pro tip to think about how you can progress in climbing and think about yourself and the attributes that you are good at or bad at. Or like, for example, majoring in a minor would be like one arm pull-ups, right? Like that's just a minor aspect of climbing and like power creation and strength doesn't mean that like you shouldn't like that, that won't help you in climbing. It could be an asset that helps you in climbing, but it's a minor. It's not a major, right? And what is a major? We can talk about that later. Cause I'll talk about that. It's very integral in our conversation today. But one thing I've noticed and what you were just talking about for yourself was you're like, you kind of just made a uh, comment that maybe you're not pushing yourself hard enough or whatever. And what I think is that a lot of strong climbers just don't major in enough majors. I think that we can just find more majors to major in, right? And so just being extremely elite in one major is often not going to be good enough in climbing. And so you need to find a lot of majors that actually matter in climbing. And so and this will this transitions perfectly into our topic for the day, which is picking boards. If you could only choose one. And Josh, you probably have a good introduction into this concept, but um um but I've said this quite a few times, either on the podcast or in conversations with friends or, you know, in classrooms or whatever. Climbers, you, me, everybody are a product of what they have been climbing on. Okay, it's very strong philosophy that I feel. Uh, it's an opinion. I don't think it's an objective truth all the time, but it's something that I've noticed and it's a personal opinion. And for a, and I make a, a very important caveat here for a long time with a lot of intentional effort, that's what you're going to end up being right if you just do a bunch of stuff and you don't have a lot of intention into it you don't really think about it very much maybe it won't turn into you but climbing is climbing and we all put a lot of intention and care into it right and so that's a big assumption there is that you're putting a lot of intentional effort for a long time and that's what you're going to end up becoming as a climber is what you've been doing given you are choosing for and this is under the context of choosing a board given what you are choosing given you are choosing for optimal progression that's what we're trying to pick between because you can pick. I think the, the reason why I wrote that is you can just pick a board for whatever is the most fun. And we can talk about that, too. But given we're talking about optimal progression as the reason why we're picking the boards, we should think about general optimizations for climbing growth and personal optimizations for climbing growth and try to assess which is more important for the time being. I have a lot of thoughts about what general optimizations for climbing growth are, right? Like obviously a, a generic amount of power and a wide variety of hand hand strength and different types of holds and footwork and the connection between your footwork and your core and certain core strengths, right? There's certain general optimizations and then there's personal optimizations, like people's specific weaknesses and specific strengths. And that's dependent on your strengths, right? And I, again, I think that climbers are a product of what they've been climbing on, but also climbers are a product of their weakest links, not just, not just their strongest links and not the majors that they have, you know, not the minors that they have majored in or the majors that they've majored in, but actually their weakest links are often what will show their climbing ability. And okay. so we need to balance developing ourselves as good climbers, but then understanding our personal leaks. But yeah, okay, I'm going to hand the, hand the mic back. Guy, I always want to ask this question where we always, it, it, it's like you, you want to lean into what you're good at, but you also don't want to be bad at things 
And how do you know where to put that effort? And I feel like that's a a topic that we mm-hmm. will tackle someday is how do you know when to focus on weaknesses versus leaning into strengths? Because I think we've talked a lot about how greatness will still really come from leaning into strengths like the your first the world's first v18 is not going to be done by someone outside of their style right at the highest level it's it's almost certain okay so i'm glad that you pulled us back on the topic i I mean we really have been talking about boards off and on for the whole time and and we also acknowledge at the beginning that there's no way that one podcast can cover all there is to say about boards and spray walls but again this was this topic was inspired by a comment from a, a listener, Samuel, who was just asking about building a wall and should it be standardized boards or spray walls and which, you know, what are the pros and cons of the different standardized walls or on spray walls? Just that kind of thought. And, you know, Tim, I like that idea of what if you could just have one, right? Like, let's just try to distill it down. And we kind of disagree here where, oh, well, actually, here's where we really agree is you are the sum of your intentional practice, right? It's not just about showing up and doing things. It's caring, focusing, and continuing to move forward with intention. And uh, and I, I just want to highlight again and again that that may be the most major thing to major in out of, out of it all is showing up in, with focus and try hard and with the, the goal, with a goal <laughs> at the very least. So where... I think me and Tim differed when we were talking about this before is that I actually think that for me, and and this maybe this shows my bias is that fundamentally you want to choose a board that you're excited to climb on. I I just think that is really what it comes down to is if you're not having fun showing up, then you're not going to show up. And uh, we talked about this in a podcast before around constraints. And I, I just, I encourage people to fall in love with what is available to us. And actually it makes me think of a Roman's comment, his pro tip, Roman Yellowitz, where he said, find out what you're psyched on, get real specific. And then you've got motivation figured out because if you know what you're psyched on, that's what you're pursuing, then you're willing to even do bring up those weaknesses. You go, ah, oh, man, like whenever I'm on these like little feet, uh, you know, I'm not so good at, but I'm so psyched on X, Y, Z that I'm willing to put effort into this other weakness to, uh, so that I can lean into the thing that I love. And so when we think about this, I, I don't want to you know, pigeonhole Tim or, or say what he's thinking, but I think one of the differences that we have that maybe we can somehow figure out how to, to reconcile combined is I want to climb on something that I love. And there, there's a lot of flexibility there. And I think sometimes you just love what you commit to, but I want to climb on what I love. And Tim, maybe because of his more performance mindset, especially right now, and and just him being more of an elite climber, wants to make sure that what you're climbing on actually addresses the things that you need to address to be the best you can be. And that was one of my comments when I responded to uh, to Samuel was, you know, if he had told me, Hey, all I'm doing is climbing on vertical granite, like really techie vertical granite. It's like, okay, well, uh, a kilter might actually be great for you because it's thuggy, steep. Usually the holds are more pinchy and just balancing that out. And so it's, I don't know, it, it, there's a lot of nuance here, but I thought that the super high level for me was still climbing what you love. If you show up and you're just in love every day, 
you know, I, I fell in love with the moonboard and push it to to real high heights for me. And I don't think I would have ever done that if it had been a spray wall by myself. And I can talk about that more later, but I don't think I ever would have achieved the level of strength I got from that training tool had I not really enjoyed it. And whether or not that was the most beneficial thing for me is questionable, but I guess I would argue that I probably found more strength and training success and mindset learning and projecting from showing up and doing something I love f- for the long haul than doing something that was technically probably better for me, but me not quite pursuing it the same level of vigor. So yeah, me and Tim disagree, but, but probably kind of not. So there you go, Tim. Yeah, I think, oh, dude, yeah, I think it was really well said. And uh, I actually don't see this as a disagreement. I just see it as a kind of what you're saying, like a difference in approach and like a difference in overall desire and honestly, a different definition of fun. Um, Because for me, the definition of fun is the aspect of understanding that I'm progressing and putting myself on something that will allow me to perform. And I can see that on all of the boards. So I have just as much fun on all the boards, but I do lose fun on certain boards. And I, I actually lose fun more on the boards that you love um, more often. And so, cause I have fun to start for an hour and then two hours and on the kilter board, I keep going for fun and the tension board. Sometimes I keep going for fun, but honestly on the moon board, I'll lose fun very quickly and on spray walls. I'll, I'll lose fun the least quickly on most spray walls. But um, I actually do want to ask you a question um, because yeah, like I said, my points for today will all be given you are choosing for optimal progression and given that you do have fun with performance. So for me, it's going to be, that's a given. Um, but for you, I think a lot of the advice will be for uh, selecting through that kind of optimization of what you're actually going to be interacting with on a daily basis. But I actually do have a question for you. Um, why do you love the moonboard? Like why, why do you have so much fun uh, on the moonboard specifically, both in terms of like how it makes you feel, but then also like just about the moonboard in general? Um, I guess like, because it sounds like you, you do have that bias where you're, you would select that board just for the fun aspect of it. But what about it is so fun for you? I literally do select it, uh, just (laughs) for the fun. Yeah. It's what you have. (laughs) So uh, let me preface this by saying again, I I think it's just flat out clear that the person having the most fun is usually going to be the one that does better. And I think I shared this anecdote a long time ago where I was working a finance job and I was working like a hundred hours a week and some something went wrong at two in the morning on a Saturday, like some insane thing where I'm just a full on desk jockey that's in a consulting firm, just miserable. And I watched my boss light up and he thought it was awesome that something was going wrong. And it was interesting at two in the morning on a Saturday. And I just had this light bulb where I said to myself, holy shit, I'm, I, I, can never outwork someone that's having fun right now. And uh, Mm. let's just say I didn't last in that job for more than like four years, you know, because it was just, I wasn't having fun. So, you know, that's kind of tangential, but maybe it gives some insight into, into me. And some people are, are better grinders than me. Uh, You know, they can just, some people are just, I'm going to go in the basement and I'm just going to hang board for two years and I'm going to come out and crush the swarm. And, you know, that good for them, but this is me just acknowledging also how, how I perform at my best level. And I had climbed on spray walls with friends a bunch before I ever touched a moonboard, and I loved it. The most fun thing for me ever in my climbing and probably where I saw the, the fastest progression is 
a site crew on, uh, we call it the plexi. It was like, it was a spray wall, whatever. doesn't matter. Dude, what a good spray wall. Oh God, that was so fun. It got the replaced SF by, it got wall? replaced by a kilter board now, sadly. Stupid uh, ass replacement. Well, well, so here's the thing. So fundamentally to, to answer your question, what I like in climbing is climbing with my friends. I'm a community mm-hmm. climber. I, I love climbing. I love the movement and I do go out and climb by myself sometimes, but I like climbing with my friends. I don't know, I don't know what else to say. Climbing is fun, is more fun for me with people. So when the uh, pandemic hit and I was out on the farm, there was no people. I was just, uh, I was a new father. I was out, I, I grew up on a farm out in the country. And so I, and I built a wall cause I was going crazy. And for me, the moon board was a way to basically have a community without people actually being there. And one of the things is that I really believe that trying hard is one of the key components to getting better. And if you put me on a spray wall on something that I made up and it's completely arbitrary, I mean, look, I know climbing is arbitrary, but for me, if I made some little shitty random climb in my barn on some holds no one knows about, I just don't know if I'd have the motivation to actually finish it. And when I put the moon board up and there was a ranking and then I started videoing myself, well, then when I was trying to flash a climb and my feet cut on the last hold, I would just try the extra 5% to make sure that I actually flashed the climb because it's on video. I was posting about it. I was trying to climb the ranks. And so for me, the, the community aspect of held me accountable to try as hard as I could. And that's fundamentally what the moon board does for me. And I actually probably climb better on the kilter board. Interestingly enough, I'm really good on pinches, thuggier moves, big moves. I climb really well on the kilter board, but uh, the, the way that they do the app or whatever rank it, it's not there. You know, if, if I tell you I'm in the top five in the U S or the world on the 2019 set, it's like, you know what that means? Like, it's very clear what that means. And that, that doesn't exist anywhere else. So fundamentally, that's what drives the fun for me is the competition and the community where no other board at this time has it. So that's, that's me. Man, yeah, I think it's a really good answer. And I think a lot of people will relate to that. And I definitely can relate to certain aspects of that. But I think you are picking out a thread about like my approach in to climbing where like, I think I personally recognized growing up that um, that for me was a very external factor. And especially for me growing up at Planet Granite Sunnyvale specifically and having very specific aspirations to win competitions or like get really good at competitions. I kind of figured out that like, I can't rely on that. Like I can't, if I want to get good or like get really, you know, focused or like learn as much as possible and try to win all the time. I can't rely on that aspect because it's probably not always going to be there and it's not always going to be that fun. And, but like, for me, if I wasn't a competitive athlete and I wasn't trying to be the best, you know, that I could possibly be, that matters a lot more. And so I I don't want to like, I don't want to have a conversation here where I'm saying that my way is more important or Josh's way is more important. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's very important for people to recognize what they want out of climbing. It's very important to recognize that because there's no wrong and right here, but there is a wrong and right approach for what you want out of climbing. And so maybe that was a really good story and like thought. And that actually makes so much sense, dude, like knowing you and like kind of understanding that previous wave, which 
very, very rarely exists anymore. You know, just having that, because I remember sometimes coming to PG San Francisco and like, I couldn't even like approach the spray wall because you guys were just like doing your thing. And I was always like, man, these guys are so good. And like, who are these you know, a long guys time ago. with their shirts off, make a lot of noise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was really cool for me. It was actually very cool. I was like, man, these guys are like shirtless because they're jacked enough to be able to be shirtless and they're trying hard enough to be shirtless. Actually, it was funny because back then I saw that as like a prerequisite taking your shirt off. And so I didn't even feel worthy taking my shirt off until I was like trying hard enough and stuff. I just thought that was so funny because um, I don't think that's necessarily the truth of that. But like, uh, I think that was funny how I kind of created that story in my head. But man, you guys were really good climbers. Like you guys would just pull on every time and give your best. And then I guess, like I said, I use that to be like, okay, well, I don't feel worthy enough or like good enough or whatever to pull on with you guys. So how do I replicate that? Well, it's all the things that you guys are replicating without the community aspect, right? And mm. I have my community, of course, I have my friends, but honestly, like if I just focused on me and focused on all the things that I could do to get the best out of my session or my attempts, and then my friends did that as well, maybe we would get like better, you know, well, quicker than- I just, just fundamentally, I, I like what you're saying about understanding what your goals are. And I'm, I used to be embarrassed with this idea that I'm somewhat, or there's a lot of extrinsic motivation there. I like climbing with people. People bring out the best in me. And I used to be somewhat embarrassed about that. And I would literally, if I was in the gym by myself, I would you know, make friends with someone so I could climb with someone. So I would have that good session. And, and uh, you know, over time, as I get older and I just don't really care what people think of me as much. I'm okay with that. Like I I'm, I'm okay with looking for someone to climb with it, that that will bring out the best of me. And so just acknowledging what it is that really gets you psyched on just to, yeah, again, to echo Roman stuff. Uh, but let's, let's pull it back in, into the practical realm as we get off into the esoteric weeds as we do. And before we go into each of these boards, what I kind of wanted to tackle first is just this idea of standardized boards versus a spray wall and mm -hmm. why, you know, I, I, first of all, I don't want to go deep into, you know, I went with the standardized boards because of the community aspect, but I, I guess, you know, what, what do spray walls have to offer to you versus, uh, you know, standardized boards and, and you know, especially taking in that lens of, optimization of yourself, you know, maybe we, maybe we should, yeah, let's, let's kind of pull off my kind of lens of community and friends and fun. I mean, I'm sure I'll still chime in with that, but let's get more into how do we make ourselves into the best climbers we can be using this as a tool. Totally. Yeah. So the spray walls are an interesting part of this conversation and I'm going to start there before I give my thoughts on like the, the standardized climbing walls. Um, because there's a lot more there, to be honest, I think the spray walls are, uh, I, maybe it's also a personal bias, but I would, I would consider spray walls to be the best thing to buy or to build if you wanted to get good at climbing. Uh, I, I just see that as the overall, it's the nicest for overall customization. You can literally pick and choose whatever holds in whatever orientation you want them to be in and whatever angle you want. And there's no right or wrong there, honestly. Um, it's the best to tweak over time as well because you can't tweak the other boards, right? The other boards are standard and that's just what they are. And so if you find that you're, you know, six months later after climbing on this board and you're giving yourself curriculum and you're teaching yourself things and you're like, well, these are no longer the weaknesses that I have, then you can tweak that. And that's really, really nice about spray walls. 
Um, and the last component that I wrote, uh, that I think is the most integral part about spray wall climbing into why that's actually good for you is it requires creativity to even use, right? It requires you making climbs. It requires you. And aside from the stoked app or whatever other app that people are using nowadays to like, you know, create a community for your boards and stuff. Let's just assume that you're just the only person climbing on this board or you and five other friends or whatever are climbing on this board. You have to make up your own climbs, right? You have to also pay attention to what climbs are good and bad. You have to make your own discovery for what grades are to make these climbs happen. Or you don't, you don't have to write grades at all, right? Overall, there's the best opportunity for having a pure climbing experience about, you know, finding climbs that are cool, finding climbs that are hard, finding climbs that are easy and fun or flowy. Like there's so much variety available on the boards that actually aren't super available on most of the boards. And I will kind of share the standardized boards and I will share, you know, what aspects of boards have that are, you know, kind of specific to each board, but I see a spray wall as a mixture of all boards and, or an opportunity for you to make, make a mixture of all boards. So I see it as a very, very obvious answer here is that if you have, if you have the willingness to understand that aspect of spray walls and you're willing to kind of do that daily, which is a huge part of fun for people like me and Josh and for stronger climbers, progression is literally correlated with your understanding of climbing, right? So it, it doesn't need to be pushed and that creative side needs to be played with all of the time. I actually find that if I'm not making up climbs regularly, I am getting a little bit dumber in the climbing IQ brain and I need to kind of push that theory. I'm like, well, oh damn, like I actually did think that this was going to be ideal this way and I would just spray, you know, holds up on the wall and make stuff up for kids all the time when I was coaching, you know, youth teams and stuff. And I find that to be harder over time and like my understanding of relativity between climbing holds and movement theory and whatnot gets more complex if I'm not practicing all the time. So this is one aspect of practice is well, actually the creation of it. Setting that I, some of you are kind of glossing over is that setting really does make you a better climber. Just fundamentally, yep. it, it really does. And I, I was going to ask you on this whole spray wall topic, what, yeah. What, what angle do you choose? Like, it, you know, I mean, I guess an adjustable wall would be ideal, but it, I mean, you are making a spray wall right now. I know you're a little constrained by your location and where you can put it, but how do you, uh, you know, do you have any recommendations on angles for people? Or... Yeah, there's so many ways to think about this, of course. Um, but, and Josh kind of like, roasted me a bit on the angle that I was selecting for my my home wall, <laughs> which is totally fair. And I, I definitely understand that and I'll defend it here. Um, and I actually am not building it right now because running into budget issues because climbing walls are hella expensive. Um, but, uh, but when I do build my home wall, which I definitely will build, it will be a lower angle than probably most people's home walls. I'm aiming for like 30 degrees. And the reason why I want that is because I want to train my slopers. I want to train more of the the contact-based holds, contact-based movements, friction-based positions and stuff. Because for me, it's a more fun challenge and it's more sustainable for like climbing regularly. And, you know, I think doing aggressive, big pulling and stuff is awesome, but I've felt like I've stretched that major. Like I've, I've majored in that major so much and in man, when I was in Salt Lake or anywhere I go, there's always a board available. There's always a standardized climbing wall available, but there's not always a spray wall available. And I think just like over time, because I was so focused on performance, personally, I would find myself, again, not getting that creative, but just consuming the product. And I would never, ever, ever set climbs on these boards, but I would try my best to do my best on climbs that were really, really, really hard on these boards. And I did get really strong and like good performance, but 
you know, again, this goes hand in hand with what I was kind of advising for people to when you're, I'll just read what I said before, we should think about general optimizations for climbing growth, plus personal optimizations for climbing growth. And I was just saying that my general optimizations, you know, I've been climbing for 11 years, but with a lot of intention for every single year that I've climbed. And I feel personally like my climbing ability has gotten better and my general climbing abilities have gotten better every single year of my climbing. And so naturally, if I'll hover in specific majors, I kind of tapped out a lot of those majors in my opinion. And so I want to, I want to shift my focus into like other personal optimizations that matter to me a lot. And so Again, more slopey holds, more complex body positions and, you know, complex so, mechanics on, on weird holds. So it's, I mean, so it sounds to me like is again, this is your argument for figuring out what kind of climber you are and then selecting an angle that benefits you the most. And yeah, I, it is funny how most people will lean towards what they excel at. And actually you made me think of the, both a pro and a con of spray walls is that you can set what you're bad at, but I will just share that most people aren't good at saying what they're bad at. And let me tell you, they have no idea at me included, no idea what the actual grade is on these. I've got a friend who is really good at crimps and really bad at pinches and slopers. And he has a spray wall and he set this pinch sloper trainer. And he's like, ah, dude, I think this is like V9 or V10. It's really hard for me. It was, I, I am, I'm really good at that style. I was like, dude, this is like V6 or like I can warm up on. This is no joke. <laughs> this is just like easy. And it blew his mind. And then he shows me his, you know, V11 crimp rig. And I was like, yeah, this is fucking hard. This is like V11. <laughs> and it's just interesting because so common. It, it's, it, it's both a pro and a con because you can set something that you're weak at, but you actually probably don't know how to set what you're weak at. And it's mm. something that you, you got to be really careful of. And uh, I I want to reference a podcast that Will Anglin and Michael Rosado did with the the power company. I'll, I'll put a link in the notes. It's kind of older, but they talked a lot about spray walls versus uh, versus standardized walls. And I think this was probably not long after the the initial tension board came out. And this is the thing: is that people think that they know how to set their weaknesses. But it's it's almost literally impossible. Maybe someone like you, Tim, where you've set for a lot of people, you have a lot of insight into your own self. But I just, whenever you set for yourself, even the holds you're going to buy are going to be holds that you probably like. And oftentimes the things that we like are the things that we don't need to work on. And it's not to say don't do a spray wall. I just make sure that you really really lean into what's what you don't want to do and then times it by two like you you think that you don't like crimps okay get even smaller crimps okay you think this is where you could go off of this hold now put it teen, two t-nuts further than you think it is because you're always wrong and someone's going to come along like i did to my buddy and they're gonna it's gonna be in their style and it's gonna blow their mind but that's what is important to progress as a climber is to get your mind blown is, and then to say, Oh, well, you know, maybe that's not impossible. Like it, it, if my buddy thought this was, you know, V9 or V10, this, this pinch rig, and it just wasn't, but he needs to, he needs to climb, you know, V12 in this style. And so he probably couldn't even set a V12 in that style because he would have thought, Oh, that's like V16, but he's, he was wrong. And so it's just, 
I, I encourage you guys to listen to that podcast that I'll, I'll link in the show notes for some deeper discussion on here. Uh, but one of the biggest takeaways for me was you probably don't know how to set your weaknesses and you can combat that by having a crew like, oh God. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was talking about how I love standardized walls because of the community, but I would prefer a spray wall with my buddies you know, 10 times out of 10. And actually I'm lucky enough mm. to have a, a, my friend Sandra Pick has arguably one of the best home walls, best spray wall in, in, in the world. I'll, I'll, no, probably not in the world, but I'll just throw that out there. It's, I think it's, it's 50 degrees. It's 16 feet wide and 12 feet tall. And it's just incredible. Like two people nice. can climb on at the same time. And, but what makes it really wow. special is Sander, all my other uh, crew that's all similarly strong, all similarly psyched. And so I have to climb on these crimp rigs I think are fucking impossible. And then they warm up on them and I get my mind blown and I'm better because of it. Hmm. Dude, I think uh, you're making a really interesting insight there as to like the setting aspect. And, and like I said, I love you balance me so good, dude. Like I feel like I'm giving you, or I, I spray about the things that are super optimal and you know, the ideals and what I have found over 11 years of extremely intentional, very calculated training and a wide variety of training for calculated reasons. And then I give, you know, I give advice for what that is, but it's over 11 years right? everybody should, should remember that. But then also like one aspect, and I'll give you some insight and what I personally think is the reason why people can't set anti-style things or like things that aren't so good for them. Um, it's because for me, the difference between a spray wall session and a standardized board session is a standardized board session. I'm aiming for sending and performance and solving those climbs. The spray wall session, I'm looking for falling. I'm looking for all the, the ways that I will fall and fixing those things. And so that requires being flexible about changing footholds, being flexible about changing handholds. I'm very flexible when I'm making a, a climb. Uh, I'm very flexible about what's better and what's more ideal for what the climb should be, right? And that's not a conversation or a thought on standardized boards. I'm just trying to send these climbs or find ones that are good for me and ones that'll teach me good things. But the spray wall, I'm just learning movements, learning how to go from these things. And most people that I watch and most people that I know for a fact don't fall enough. They don't fail enough on those positions and therefore they are not intimate with their understanding of what's possible or what's good or bad. Yeah, a coach of mine, uh, oh, dude, you're such a, yeah. you're such a setter, you know, you want to adjust it to find that <laughs> position. It also makes me think of David Fitzgerald's where he mentioned that he just, he sets by finding positions first that mm -hmm. he wants to, to learn or understand mm -hmm. and then sets into them. And I just want, you said something that I feel like people could take the wrong way where you said I've been intentional or that you, Tim, have been intentional for 11 years and that people should remember that. But what you were saying there is that 11 years isn't that long, right? You weren't, you weren't bragging about doing it for 11 years. You're like, I'm only 11 years deep. I, am I, am I, uh, saying that correctly a bit of you, both or were honestly. you just bragging? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to brag. I'm just saying that like, you know, I think I, I don't want to, make the mistake of saying that these are really simple choices. These are simpler choices that may be overshadowed because when you try them for the first time, maybe it doesn't make very much sense, but you try it every day for, you know, for me, 11 years, it makes way more sense to like approach, you know, e even this like acknowledgement of external factors as to why maybe that won't help make you the best climber. That's one thing that I've learned over a simpler approach over a long period of time, but it wouldn't have been a quick answer type thing is what I'm saying. But also I do believe that I'm still learning. Like, I just don't think I know law on these things. I don't think that these 
even feel like law about any of these concepts. I'm just learning these concepts and I am still, again, trying to build a spray wall that's 30 degrees with a bunch of slopers and for that matter, a bunch of crimps that I, for a totally different reason to train. But for the aspect that I'm talking about here, I think that failure is one of the most important aspects of learning and climbing, right? And we don't lean into that very much because most of us have access to boards and sending and performance and can see, we can see the beauty of doing that, but we can't see the beauty in, in the failure, right? But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I would maybe say I sucked a lot growing up. No, no, I, I'm sorry. I gave you, I gave you crap there. I, I, no, no. I, I thought that you meant that 11 years isn't that long because I've been doing it for like, I don't know, a long, a long <laughs> freaking time. But no, but actually the, the thing is, is it's that intentional part that's really important. And I don't know if I, you know, can say exactly that same thing, but, uh, the thing that makes me think of when you reference these differences between spray walls and standardized boards is that performance orientation versus training orientation. And I, I, I have mixed feelings about this because again, you get, for me, I get the most out of doing what I love and getting and trying really, really hard. And I definitely am more performance oriented when, you know, when I got on the moon board, it was not, I'm going to train. I'm in, I'm on a farm in my barn. I'm going to train. It was, I'm going to be the best in the world at the moon board. I'm going to be in the number one spot like that. That was, that. there was no, there was no training for the moon board. There was no moon board as training for some other goal. It was, I'm going to show up and perform and do my best and performing and doing my best meant sending these benchmarks. And it was just kind of, it's something that I, I don't know, uh, you know, this is a, a, again, a whole nother podcast topic, but it's, it's interesting because I think that there's a nuance here and I don't know if I have it figured out where, when is it appropriate to train? When is it appropriate to perform? And there's even been a lot of talk about this on, in Instagram where, People say, oh, you know, the thing that's different about climbing versus other sports is that we try to perform all year round and we don't have training phases where or an off season. And I, I you know, I, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I, I don't know if I have extremely strong opinions on this yet, but there's something that seems off to me about both performing all the time, which you know, I kind of do and never taking the time to take a step back and and you know, address your weaker links, which is maybe something I struggle with. But then, per, but then, climbing is so nuanced and not exactly fully strength based that to think that you ever want to quote unquote not perform at your best, it, it just seems really strange to me. Where we're not lifting a weight, where you know we have to taper to show up with exactly perfect strength on that day. Mm -hmm. There's too many factors, and so this idea of maybe having an off season where you take three months off, like it, that seems, that, that seems mm -hmm. somewhat arbitrary and not understanding of the fundamentals of what climbing really is like. God, I don't know. Sorry, man. I'm, I'm off on a tangent Damn. here, but, but yeah. go ahead. No, I, I think that's a great point. And I, I agree that I find that concept kind of weird where it's like, oh, we're performing all the time. And, you know, that kind of comment about, you know, from comp climbers and whatnot, which I think is true in terms of the mental side where like, yeah, when you're in the mental pushing of all the time, you don't really want to be doing that year round, but performance is totally fine to do year round. You just need to cycle off when your body can't handle that as much anymore in specific intensities with specific grip varieties and specific movement types, right? It's, it's 
there's no generalization for taking time off or implementing more times. But one thing is clear about climbing, we can perform or we can train or we can learn, right? We can choose. And so I guess this is kind of answer what you were kind of just talking about where you're saying, you know, you you don't know, know if you feel the same way. And it's actually what I was trying to say is that when I go on the moon board, I'm just performing. I am just sending. I'm just going to send. I'm just like you. I just put up the bench, benchmark, see what I can do. And I just try as hard as I can to do the things. There's very little solving or learning oh, required, that's but that's what I, it's <laughs> what I choose to do. Yeah. It's, it's fun. But then on the spray wall, I can do one of either. I can make a climb. I can create a climb that's actually extremely complex and I don't know how to do it. And I, that's actually the purpose of the board. And, but that purpose of the board can't exist as much on the standardized sports. That's, I guess, my point there. But you can totally make a benchmark climb on the spray wall and then just go for performance, right? And so that's why I see both both opportunities there do exist, but one opportunity maybe only exists on the spray wall. But okay, um, that, that's very nuanced topic. And uh, for the sake of time, I do want to go through a couple of things that I think each standardized board are good and bad for or... Can I say yeah, one yeah. more thing on, on the spray wall? Yeah, because yeah, it's, you know, it, it occupies a, a big chunk of, of the climbing possibilities too. So even though I do want to go onto each board, I just want to kind of close this out. And I, I also want to say the stoked app is definitely an incredible app to use awesome. for, for spray walls. Just, I don't know. I, I, I think it maybe does cost money, but maybe you get one for free. I don't know. Check out stoked app. Really good way to retro flash. Climbs. Retro Flash is good too. Retro okay. Flash is a newer app that's free. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So I I think that if you're building a board and you're the spray wall type, you already know you're the spray wall type and you won't even consider a standardized board. So just, just a hint, if you're trying to decide which one to put up in your home, spray wall people know they're spray wall people people. Like they just do. And they're they're not even gonna consider putting up a board. If you're waffling, my hunch is you're probably better on a standardized board, but you can also just, when you build your, your home wall, just put in the T nuts for, or put in the spacing. When you do the grid, just make it for mm. the moon board or for the kilter board, whatever board you're, you're thinking you might do and then make it a spray wall. And then if it's not working out, you can go and get those kilter holds or moon board holds or whatever the case may be. And so that's just kind of a way to, uh, you know, give yourself some options there. It's what I did in the barn. I had, the, I had the space for two boards. Like, so I just made a big 40 degree wall that was like 17 feet wide or something. I had a big barn, big ass barn. And half of it, I thought that maybe I would do a spray wall or something. And I kind of ended up doing that. Although actually what I did was I just set routes. Like I bought holds and just made routes versus a spray wall. But I did the T nuts for a kilter board just in case at some point I decided a kilter board was going to be what I wanted there. So just a little, little tip there. Really and, smart. And, and I would say that in general, uh, people lean towards steeper and, you know, 40 or 50 is probably about as steep as you could ever, that you ever want to go. 60 is too steep, man. I, I love 60 degree walls, but it's just too steep. And at, in the tension center, they have, the beast, which is just, that may be the best spray wall in the world or, or one of them. And if I remember, it goes 55, 45, 35, kind of that barrel convex mm. style, which is just, nice. and dude, that wall is just incredible. So, and I, I also want to point out that at the tension center, most people are climbing on the beast and not the, not the standardized walls around them. And again, I think it's part of that community. People are, this is the beast. We're all going to climb on it, make up hard problems. And yeah, just wanted to to point that out there. 
And then I think we should move on to the actual standardized walls that everyone are, uh, uh, you know, are known to them. And Tim, maybe you want to carve out kind of the constraints of which ones we're actually going to talk about today, since there is a lot. Yeah. So I'm going to give my opinions for the moon board, which, and I'm classifying the moon board as 2016, 2017 and 2019 set, because they're even closer in to each other. And they're, well, yeah, they're, they're more like themselves still compared to the kilter board or the tension board too which are the other two boards that I'm going to be talking about. I'm not talking about the tension board one. I'm not talking about the decoy board, the Dana Dana Woods board. I'm not talking about those boards. I'm talking about the boards that I see more regularly in most gyms. And the TB one is still in a lot of gyms, but I do feel like that will cycle out um, to the TB two a lot more. Or if you're a gym that has a TB one, you should probably cycle out to the TB two because TB two is a lot better. Uh, Personally, I think the moon board is the best general optimization for rock climbing, actually outdoor rock climbing. And getting you used to grabbing and interacting with horrible holds with bad foot positioning. And it feels more like training than climbing for me. Uh, and it pushes me personally to try harder than smarter. Uh, I think, again, there's always the, like, like what I was saying earlier, I think Josh is a really good athlete to approach the moon board, but maybe not using the moon board exactly what the moon board is best for because it's what he climbs on mostly, right? He's just showing up to try to do his best on the board, meaning he's solving as much as possible. He's learning as much as possible, but I don't do that. Uh, I think the board is mostly, if I was to pick and all three of these boards were right next to each other and I have had opportunities to literally within a 10 minute radius, go from gym to gym specifically for each board. And I would climb on each board regularly, but separate amounts. And I did find that I was climbing on one board more than all the other boards. And that's the kilter board. And the kilter board may be the best board for teaching general climbing mechanics. Holds are nicer on average. There's a huge variety of problems that are already set, which is huge when we're talking about the whole creativity aspect of spray walls. Well, if you don't want to do that, the kilter board has an enormous amount of problems to try that are all different styles. Uh, Feet are more liberal and they're usually better in terms of the setting. It's the easiest board to try hard on in my opinion, uh, but far more variety in movement per average problem, which allows for solving and learning of optimal climbing. It's most like the gym out of any of the boards. Uh, and although the, some problems are simpler, uh, those are really good for teaching you to try hard and commit on. And so I, I find that board to be maybe the best for learning general climbing and just because it's so comfortable and because the feet are kind of everywhere, you learn more about operating with yourself on perfect climbing movements rather than teaching yourself how to just be brutal on holds. And the TB2 seems like a good mixture between both that I just talked about. It's uh, almost a perfect board in my opinion, (laughs) although I find the plastic holds can be sharp quickly and the wood is mostly best for just trying really, really hard. Uh, All the wooden holds are pretty bad. They're probably the worst holds on the wall. The, The plastic holds are interesting. There's some jugs and there's some like really, really small crimps. And then the wooden holds seem to be all the medium spread. Um, but I find I can find my sessions too intense if I climb regularly on that board. Uh, I think it's a solid training board. It's got good variety of hold types and foot options. But like I said, maybe still quite intense all around. I can't necessarily see myself having that board at my house and just only climbing on that board. Um, here's a couple of uh, personal optimizations that I can see as maybe people's weakest links and lowest hanging fruits that they will find on the boards. Therefore, that board might be good if you see yourself having those weakest links. Uh, For the moon board, I kind of wrote general movement creation is 
a good place to practice on the moon board just because you kind of do have to just grab and pull. And so instead of finding things, you're just going to try really hard to get from point A to point B. And you might even find that that's just the best way to move on the board. Movement efficiency, I find to be good practicing on that board because it's really hard to relax. And so teaching yourself how to relax on that board because most people will struggle relaxing is a great place to practice that. Sequencing, it's still actually a really good place to sequence because there's very few options and there's... uh, there's very specific places that you need to be. You're using bad footholds in more suboptimal positions. Basically, what I see the difference in all three of these boards is what the footholds do. And I see the moon board as very weird boxes, either really stretched out or really tight boxes, then you have to create movement off of. The kilter board has usually pretty ideal feet in ideal places. And therefore, you just have to try really hard to create bridges or like, you know, momentum and do really aggressive movements. And the TB2 has pretty bad footholds, pretty hard footholds to use in optimal places. So that's actually really, really good training for more of that outdoor style because outdoors you're looking through a wide variety of a bunch of bad footholds and you're just going to pick which ones are the best for your position and the relativity between the holds. And so, like I said, Moonboard is kind of general movement creation, movement efficiency and sequencing. Uh, And then I see... Well, let's... uh... Thank you for Sorry. no no breaking that down. No, I I love it, but I'm just gonna then just here's how I'm gonna make you summarize it is what's the what's if you had to put up one at your house, which one would it be? Man, it's it's always changing from year to year. That's that's kind of like what my general that's why I gave you a general answer in saying it really depends on your personal strengths and personal um well it really depends on your definition of what you think the general things to train are in climbing are important. And so for me, I would, I would still pick the kilter board because there's so much general in climbing that I still want to master and learn like how to get from point A to point B with all these types of types of feet. I can also see the kilter board still being a board that I can get moonboard things off of like attributes that the moonboard can offer. I can still try to replicate those things on the kilter board. And the TB2, like I said, is missing a couple of things. And the things that I think the, kil- the TB2 are missing are, like I said, a more comfortable holds. Uh, more comfortable holds uh, just on the board themselves. I think I can, I like all the holds that exist, but maybe some more comfortable holds in certain sections would be nice. And then a kickboard, like I said, matters a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of strange to me that it doesn't have a kickboard. Uh, I would like to know the reason why it doesn't, but that actually matters a lot because what I noticed was every time I pulled on the tension board too, I would be pretty taxed. Like my whole body would just be like, feel aggressive. I really like that the kilter board has such a huge kickboard and most of them are pretty bad footholds. They're just like push feet and smears and stuff that you still use aggressively. And some of them are on that in-cut angle or whatever, or the flat angle. And I just like how much variety there is to start things. And I don't like starts being cruxy ever, especially when I warm up and stuff like the kilter board is a good full session board all of the time, you know, any day right? The tension board is maybe the best tool for learning and teaching, but it's not the board I would build at home. And the moon board is just an absolute necessity board that I need to climb on probably once uh, every other week. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Interesting. And, and I'm not surprised you chose those three boards to really go in deep on because I do feel like they're the most prevalent boards. Sorry to the the boards that we're not mentioning or going as deep on. It's just the, the truth is those are kind of the three that are most likely to be at the gym that you're all listening to or that everyone's listening that they're encountering or even on their radar for what to buy. And it's interesting because I will say again that, yeah, when I'm on the moon board, I'm just on performance mode. I I just want to, I just want to climb those climbs. I am not training. 
but with that said, it's it's interesting that you argue that the moonboard is maybe one of the best outdoor oriented boards. And I think it's funny because I think it is true, but not in the way that one might think where I think kilter board does teach you movement better. I think that the tension probably teaches you just as well. And also those smeary feet, there's, there's actual feet, not just handholds as feet. And most of the setting utilizes those feet in a way that's smart and encourages appropriate, typical movement. But what I find in the moon board is that you have to try this extra little bit harder in some weird way. You got to snatch that. You got to jump just a little further to grab a freaking gas stone and you're going to swing out. And it just asks of you something, an extra 5%. Yeah. Like it's kind of like not fun in a way. It asks you to do something where you have to want it. You can't just kind of like that. That's one of the things we were talking about good setting on, on another podcast. And I had a comment from a friend who said they climbed a benchmark and said that they thought it was soft. And I think benchmark has really good setting. Actually, I actually haven't got a chance to climb a benchmark still, but I know the setter. I, I know it's good setting. And you may have comment, oh, that's because this guy is a good climber. And it was just, he was able to just read the route. And I guarantee you that you know, there's two feet there. You just, he knew those positions. He was able to just do it where the moon board, you have to do something you don't always want to do. And even when you're set up quote unquote perfectly for the move, you still have to dig deep in a way that is difficult. And to be honest, a lot of hard outdoor climbing is like that. The, the hold is just Mm -hmm. a little further. It's just a little sharper than you want it to be. You can't quite keep that foot, whatever it is, a lot of hard climbing. It's it makes me think of Andy Lamb saying that one of his big understandings when he went up into the V14, V15 range uh was that he had to get uncomfortable, that he had to do things that were uncomfortable. And yeah, yeah. And and so the the moonboard does that thing that I'm talking about with it, it recreates some of what Andy's talking about when he started getting into that V14 up range, how everything was just a little smaller than he wanted it, wanted it to be. The positions were a little more awkward. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to say again what that, that quote from Jamie Emerson, where climbs aren't awkward, climbers are awkward. And so I'm not saying that the moon board, you know, is always awkward or that outdoor climbs are always awkward, but it, it forces you to embrace something that may be beautiful, perfect gym setting. When I say perfect, I'll take that with a grain of salt, but hopefully you understand what I mean doesn't actually require you to do most of the time because it's not as enjoyable often as a, as a user. Like, does anyone really want to grab a crimp that's extra sharp or like a little tweaky? It's like, no, we don't. And so as setters often, we, we make things comfortable and fun. And so the moonboard does push you into this realm that I think is very useful outdoors. But with that said, it also can be kind of whack where I often find that when I climb outdoors, like I, when I had that day recently, I, I did this other thing called mud Falcon and just like a, a hard V8. And the top out was a little spicy and a little techie on it's a ret. And I just, I, I mean, I did it. I did it first try or, or that top part first try, but I just climbed it in a way that was a little jumpy and dynamic instead of really smooth and controlled. And I, I believe I did that because, well, I'm a little out of practice, but also because my time on the moon board has encouraged me to be a little a little like that. And you know, that's, this is one of the reasons why when people ask me, Oh, what board should I get? 
I never say the moon board. I always say you should get a kilter board because it's kind of the most friendly gym like you're saying. And like a buddy of mine who's in his 40s and, you know, like a V3 climber or maybe a V6 climber sometimes, you know, he came over and the moon board was just not for him. He goes, should I get a moon board? I'm like, no, dude, no, get a kilter board. Uh, I, I have not gotten a chance to climb on the, on the tension board uh, too. But after interviewing Will on here, which was a, a really fun podcast, and he talked about at the end of it, how he just really poured everything he had into it. And I really respect Will. And I respect that that care that I know he put in. And so my hunch is, is it's a, a wonderful board and I can't wait to try it. But I do see a somehow like a in between the moon board and the kilter board. I could be wrong on that, but just that's my gut instinct. And uh, I would say that I've had more fun climbing on the kilter board than almost any other board. But as a result, I feel like it's it's not the best for me. It, it's too easy in a way. It's too, the holds are so comfy that there's always a foot there. And I, it's very thuggy and it's just, it, it speaks to me, but I don't know if that's, that's the best for me slash, uh, you know, the most fun I have when I, I really like digging extra, extra deep to climb that, those rankings as I went into before. Dude, I, I love, oh man, I love how you're talking about this. Uh, I think this is such a good insight into like picking. And I also love that you're saying that like you have a moon board, but you would probably recommend other people to have a kilter board at home, which is so interesting. I love what you're saying about you going out to the outdoor climb and your habits formed poorly because you're mostly climbing on the moon board, which is an enormous insight into picking. And so that's kind of the message that I would like to highlight mostly is recognize yourself. If you're going to pick boards or, and this is, like I said, I'm phrasing this in more so picking boards to climb on, not even, not even if we're talking about picking the board, the one board to build at your house, picking the board that you're climbing on as a training tool. If you have to, if you happen to be in a place where you can pick out of the boards, basically, uh, you should be picking based on yourself, right? And so understanding these, hopefully we can, we highlighted certain attributes of the boards, certain characteristics that the boards might bring about your style or not highlighting your style, which may be then the reason to then put yourself on that board because it's an anti-style of yours or whatever reason. But cer certainly these boards create climbers, right? And that's why I kind of started off by saying you are the product of what you climb on, right? And so if you can recognize that the moon board is good for these things, but bad for these things, then so far for me, the general answer here is split between the boards climb on the boards, climb in the gym, climb outside, jump around, like understand the differences in what you're supposed to be doing in certain aspects, why some things are good and some things are bad, right? But we do see a couple of general things. Josh is pointing out that, and and I pointed this out, the moonboard is painful, man. It's awkward. It's stretchy. And that's good, right? Sometimes, right? And the kilter board is so easy to like enjoy and have good movement on. That's good. Sometimes you have to understand what things are good and bad throughout those clean movements. And, you know, my insight into why Josh maybe wouldn't get a kilter board is because he's so damn good at that. That's his, in, that's his number one bread and butter intuitive movements. So he's majored that major so long for so long. And his body is built for that. He has built his body for that. And so maybe he's not going to get that much out of that board. So I would agree. Probably don't have that board. Maybe the home wall version, which I haven't climbed on, but that seems to suit you better. It seems like the TB2 might suit you better because it's got that variety that you would want to have for your climbing. But it sounds like, you know, where Josh and I are in between is balance, having fun and balance, learning and understand the differences and what, what might cost you from, from learning, what might cost you from, or what it might cost you to implement those types of things in your climbing 
but there's no right or wrong. I think there's no right or wrong. It just depends on what you want out of climbing. And I think that's kind of where I've come to. And like I said, my, my biggest advice here, even though our podcast is about picking the one would actually be, my advice would be to pick all of them and to climb on all of them and learn yourself and to kind of learn the good and the bad and the strengths and the weaknesses that you have. Well, and, and really any of them will be great. Like you, you just, you will be psyched if you really dive in deep on the kilter, totally. the moon board, the tension. And actually, uh, I, I would say that if you were my buddy, I would encourage you to get the moon board because I like, I have a thread. All my buddies are on the 2016 set right now. And so whenever I'm climbing, I'm taking a picture and being like, oh, I'm sessioning right now. Like, this is the one I'm on. Like, what do you think? And it's just fun to have that. So yeah, I, I would recommend general the kilter board, but you know, if you want to join my my group thread, uh, get a moon board. And I, I want to do a quick shout out to the grasshopper board, which is not yeah, not quite as popular, but I have a buddy who has an adjustable one up uh, up near me. And so I've gotten to climb on a little bit. I was actually just talking to Boone Speed a few days ago, and he's the one who shaped all those holds. And something that I found really interesting that I didn't understand was intentional until I talked to him was that a lot of the holds, I'll grab them and I'll think that they're pretty good. I'm like, oh, this hold's good. And then we'll uh, kick the board back to, I don't know, 40 or 50 or whatever the case may be. And those holds that I thought were going to be really good are comfy and fun to climb on when it's steeper, but they aren't as juggy as I thought they were going to be. And it was interesting hearing from Boone how that was very, very intentional, how they were good at the, they were good and comfortable and good for, a, you know, a 10 degree wall. And then when it was really kicked back, they were still positive and enjoyable to climb on, but they weren't quite as, I thought they were going to be too juggy and, and, and they weren't. And I just thought that was cool where I, I, I think that a lot of boards get, a lot of boards have a certain angle that they excel at. Like I, you know, the moon board is a 40 degree board and the kilter board not so good at 15 degrees. Like, let's just face it. It's not, you do not want to climb. Th those holds were made at, at, with the steeper angle in mind. You know, what the exact one is, I don't know, but let's just say 40, 40 to 50 is kind of where when you see people climb on the moon board that are really strong, they're often kicking it back to 45 plus. So I just thought that was kind of a cool random thing where I didn't realize that could be done. And I just wanted a little little shout out to Grasshopper for that, uh, you know, and to Boone for shaping those and making it work like that, which I didn't even realize was possible. Nice. That's really cool. It actually provides a little bit of insight into the kilter board grades kind of getting kicked back and maybe the every, every, every angle, every five degrees it goes down, people just like, like to slap a, a one number grade above, but it actually doesn't work out that way on the kilter board. And some climbs in my opinion are actually easier at 55 or 60 than at 40, which is so strange because just like how the movements work. Um, but anyway, that's some proper insight. That's, that's really, really cool. Um, and yeah, that, that was a fun you know We didn't cover his, uh, mm. wood holds versus plastic holds and just kind of what you think. And that we don't have to go in deep on that, but I, I personally think that it doesn't matter that much. Like I, I there, yeah, there was all this well, actually stuff. Did. Oh, you, 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 yeah. you just I, totally disagree or, uh, you want me? No, to... no, actually I, yeah, a little bit. Well, I talked about it when I was talking about the TB2, I glossed over it, but, uh, I said the wooden holds are always in like that medium range, which I actually think is true in like a lot of the other boards that have wooden holds. But I was saying that I found that to be too intense. Uh, I think that the way that you climb on wood often, I think I like the moonboard wooden holds a lot because they act a lot more like plastic holds. 
but the, the TB1 and the TB2 wooden holds and the TB2 wooden holds are better than the TB1 wooden holds. They're cooler, but the footholds specifically are still like very slick and you slip a lot, which I don't think is a component of climbing that happens for me very often. So in order to make it work, I have to try extra hard. Um, and that's just not sustainable for me in like most sessions, but it's good training. Uh, I actually do view the wooden holds. That's their argument more volatile. is that it, it makes the feet slipperier, which is a good bonus and it saves your skin on wood holds. And I just, I think for me, I just don't think it matters that much. I, I don't want to climb all in wood, wooden holds. I, I'm not a fan of nothing but wooden holds. And, you know, if I, I think the Moonboard 2019 has a good mix of wooden and, and plastic, and I don't find my feet skate that much on wooden holds. I mean, yes, to mm. some extent, but it's not like, oh my God, it's like uh, I'm on dual text. It's just different. I just think it's overblown. I, I don't think people should make some kind of huge sweeping decisions where I've gone to people's woodies that are, well, they're woodies. They're hundred percent wood. All of the, you know, handholds are wood too. And I just think that's a little bit much. Just don't think it matters that much personally. And especially when the wood holds are made yeah. well, they're, they're, they're fun. And yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just think it's not, the, the hype is not worth it, whether it's good or bad. It's just kind of like, yeah. Yeah. Overblown. There's way. just a factor there, but uh, I, I agree with what you're saying where it's not, the end all be all for selecting what you're going to put on your board for sure. Uh, dude, I forgot uh, as, as we close up, uh, I forgot to, to do my pro tip. So I'm just going to do my pro tip super, super quick. And it's something that I learned this past weekend outdoors after being <laughs> on the moon board too much. And so it ties in with my, you know, that thing you said where what climbing you does builds you as the climber you are and, and builds your habits. And I was on this V5. Actually, I'll just say, the pro tip is it's body positions, not holds. And we all know this. This is get said again and again, but it just got hammered into me where I was doing this V5 and this person I was climbing with where V5 was a little more tricky for them. They were struggling with this slopey arete. And he kept asking me like, you know, how do you grab this hold? Like, is this one better? And the truth was, is that it wasn't about the hold. You could have used anything. It was about leaning over and getting on the foot and standing up. And it wasn't about finding the right hold on the arete. It was about committing to that body position of leaning into the foot and standing up. And literally it, it didn't matter. And it was just interesting. It's always this, this reminder that yes, you want to take the hold and make it as good as it can be, right? Like find the right finger position to maximize the, the best part of the hold, but that's not actually the biggest lever you know, you can take a little crimp and it'll be atrocious on, you know, a uh, hanging on a 40 degree wall. If you were trying to campus on it. And then if you put a jug foot on and you sucked under it, it might feel really good all of a sudden. And it's just recognizing again and again, that's body position, not holds. And that's something to remember even on these training walls is it's so tempting to think of them as just training your fingers, learning how to jump. But the, you know, the meta thing that that's getting drilled into you is about finding the position that you can generate off of finding the position that you can actually latch the hold. And, you know, just, this is our, of course, one of our overarching themes is just focusing on the right North star. And it's not, you know, these training boards, get your fingers strong, get, you know, teach you how to jump and latch, but uh, understand what those lessons are. And they're not purely physical, right? It's not just about them making your, what does it mean to be stronger on the board? It's not just physically stronger. And, uh, that's my pro tip. I'm going to close nice. with that, Tim. 
I uh, wish you said that earlier because I have a lot of thoughts there, but I won't share them. Not right now. Uh, you guys will hear <laughs> my thoughts on another podcast in the future. Yeah. Well, I didn't <laughs> but do that's any... a really, really good pro tip. Yeah, I didn't do our announcements either. I, uh, this this pod's probably going to come uh, come out somewhere around when we do classroom number five. I think it's going to be there on November 22nd at 7 p.m. PST or November 29th at the same time. So if it comes out between them, uh, yeah, sorry if you missed it, but hope we can get you for the next one. Join us on Patreon and uh, we can go even deep, much, much deeper on this. But I don't know. We covered – that That was a lot of boards we covered. Although, God, there's like 10 boards out now or something. It's too many. Stop making boards, people. We got enough of them. Build better gyms. Yeah. Build better build gyms. Be- build better setting. Build better apps too. I was so disappointed. I was so excited for <laughs> Moonboard's new app and then it just crashed on me. And I couldn't get it open. I thought it was the crappiest app ever, but I thought maybe they have another, a good one coming out. And then it was just the same, just like it was darker. It was like, oh, like this is literally the same app, just with like a black skin. It felt like that doesn't open. And then don't even get me started on the apps for Kilter, Tension, Grasshopper. They're all from Aurora Climbing. And I'm not, I, I don't know. I, I just, they're not that good. If, if there's a, <laughs> Okay, sorry, dude. Rant. Angry Josh is the best shot. This is this is the <laughs> yeah. best outro ever. It's just <laughs> shit talking the apps. Yeah, I gotta make one more. Uh, the ending of that uh, board lords video, <laughs> the outro. I don't know if you saw it. Is Zach? They're getting the the Swiss francs, and Zach goes, "Oh, it's like a USAC comp, but with more money." <laughs> and I just think that's like the funniest shit talk outro. Is just exactly what you're doing about the, the apps. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. We'll see you guys on the next one. Thanks. That was Thanks fun one, Tim. Take care, dude. Go do Sleepwalker. Take care. Later, bud. Okay. All right. (laughs) See ya. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about Test Piece Climbing, you can check us out at testpiececlimbing.com and even book a session with one of our coaches. (laughs) 